Okay, looks like we're live. Um, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the September 2nd, 2023 edition of the Saturday Free School. Um, as always, I'm joined by other members of the Free School online. Um, and we have a few things that we're going to touch on today, including um, an update and announcement regarding the Free School itself. And then um, we're going to briefly talk about the mission statement of um, a new journal that is being launched as part of the free school called Avant-Garde. And then um, Doc is going to talk about a theory and practice of the state in this time of crisis um, and also bring in Du Bois and why he's relevant for this time. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to start by handing it over to Alice to give an update um, for the free school. Yeah, so uh, starting next week, so September 9th, we will be in person at the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia. So it's located at 22nd and Chestnut, and it was also the site of our last event in Philadelphia celebrating um, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad and Paul Robeson. Uh, so we'll, we'll be returning um, in person, uh, but we'll also be keeping the live stream component so that viewers that are not based in Philadelphia can continue to tune in. Uh, so just an announcement so that everyone can get ready to be back in person and together, um, and also to welcome all the people and individuals that we've wanted to uh, bring in person. Um, so look forward to seeing everybody. It's at the Unitarian, so there are a couple of entrances and we'll make it known for where you enter um, and uh, post the details on our free school following. And at the Unitarian, it's on the third floor and we'll have signs leading up as well. Uh, but we'll make it easy for people to find um, uh, where it is at the church because sometimes they can be amazed. Uh, so. Yeah, and just wanted to reiterate that, yeah, we'll still be having the live stream and everything. So people who typically join us online, um, you'll still be able to participate as always. But yeah, I'm really excited um, that we'll have a chance to meet together again in person. Although I feel like in some ways we got kind of used to this particular format. I think there's like just a kind of spark that happens when free school meets in person that um, like I really miss. And um, yeah, but I don't know if anyone else has anything to add for that. All right, cool. Yeah, we'll um we'll make sure to share like the address, the instruction, the sort of um, instructions for how to get there, all of that stuff um, on social media so people are aware. Um, but yeah, it's in like a very central location in Center City in Philadelphia too. Um, so if you're in the area, please feel free to join us for yeah for next week when we meet in person again. Um, but okay, with that we can move to the next thing, which is. Um, as people may be aware, um, in the next couple months, the Free School is going to be launching a journal, which is uh, currently titled Avant-Garde, a Journal of Peace, Democracy, and Science. And we've been kind of talking about this, this journal for the past few months, um, and we're aiming to launch it in November um, to also coincide with um, our forthcoming event on Henry Winston and the anniversary of Winston's book, Strategy for a Black Agenda. Um, and we're actually thinking of dedicating the inaugural issue of Avant-Garde to Henry Winston. Um, so there's gonna be a lot of articles and also artwork 
that will be going into this first issue. And um, yeah, so I'm really excited about it. And a few of us have been working as part of the editorial team and also um, starting to develop articles and pieces for that first issue. But um, we wanted to bring it in today to, um, just sorry, one second. Um, we wanted to bring it in today to uh, read the mission statement for the journal, which is um, the, so the people who are part of the editorial board, including myself, Michelle, Doc, Jahan, and Serafina, um, we've been kind of working on this for the past few months and developing it. And, um, and yeah, so we wanted to read it today, today for free school to hear, um, I guess, what other people in free school think about it. And, um, yeah, to see if people have thoughts. And we'll also bring this up next week as well. So you don't have to give feedback now, but we can also talk more about it next week. Um, but yeah, so if it's okay, um, I can read the statement and then if people have sort of immediate responses or thoughts, then we can talk about it a little bit as well. Um, but okay, so here's the statement. Um, so avant-garde, a mission statement. Avant-garde, a journal of peace, democracy, and science, seeks to advance the struggle of ideas at the dawning of a new revolutionary period in American and world history. In such a moment of possibility, our journal insists upon the capacity of people to think for themselves in new and profound ways and to see the possibilities for a new world. Avant-garde aims to be a publication where ideas can live and breathe producing writing and art that speak to people from every facet of their lives. Our journal commits itself to principles associated with the best of the avant-garde ethos, courage and standing for ideas that are worthy of the people, and science in seeking to arrive at the truth through disciplined experimentation along several modes of discovery and inquiry. It is with this spirit that we inherit the ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois Martin Luther King Jr. and James Baldwin, claiming them as figures for our time. We see ourselves in the tradition of the Black freedom struggle and the breakthroughs that it achieved in human consciousness, in theories of democracy and social change, and in methods of, revolution and in methods of revolutionary struggle. We link ourselves to the fearless innovation and imaginary of John Coltrane, Sun Ra, Duke Ellington, Nina Simone, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, Alice Coltrane, Stevie Wonder, Archie Shepp, Max Roach, Ornette Coleman, and many others, artists who were part of the struggle for freedom in the United States. We use the concept of the avant-garde as they do, in recognition of a people already in motion, hastening to make all things new. As a world historic concept, the avant-garde speaks to new and experimental movements in art, music, and politics. In the US, it emerges directly from the effort to connect progressive and revolutionary ideas to people striving for freedom and peace. Hence, we seek to recapture the avant-garde from the ruling elite who have distorted its meaning into a farce of trivial dec decadent pursuits far removed from the people. We see the struggle um, far removed from the people. We see the struggle of ideas as an existential question confronting all forces in society that struggle for progress. We thus place ourselves squarely among those broad sections of the American people who are searching for a future, 
who are challenging the philosophy, values, and legitimacy of a dying regime in the United States. The American people today are in open rebellion against their ruling class. This rebellion manifests in many ways, from the groundswell of support for populist candidates in the 2024 presidential race to the broader collapse in public trust toward major institutions of rule in U.S. life. America faces a profound crisis. The ruling elite cannot rule in the old way, making it the task of the people to find their own solutions to resolve the crisis. Contrary to the claims of those who defend the status quo, the American people are not an ignorant, hateful mass interested in imposing a fascist regime upon themselves. Rather, they seek a new type of democracy, and in the process, a new American people is being born. This democratic movement in the U.S. is commensurate with much larger global processes, what can be called an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity, the democratic recentering of the world order toward the most densely populated and creatively fertile civilizations on the planet. In this light, we recognize that the advances of the 20th century, namely the socialist, anti-colonial, civil rights, and working class movements and revolutions, forged a new global consciousness through the freeing of humanity's majority, and in turn created new possibilities for revolutionary change. Old ideas of revolution are no longer sufficient for this time. We are therefore dedicated to the pursuit of clarity, cutting through manufactured ideas pushed by a ruling elite who seek to divide humanity and discarding the, do the dogmatism of a left that believes knowledge comes from the top down rather than belonging naturally to the people. Unafraid, we strive to know the truth. Indeed, we greet the present moment as greater numbers of ordinary Americans proceed upon a new field of politics on their own terms, striving to know one another in new ways and to rediscover their capacity as agents of history. Avant-garde emerges from the thinking of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation, a unique project which has for more than a decade endeavored to create spaces of moral, spiritual, and political education for the people of Philadelphia. Remaining rooted in Philadelphia, simultaneously America's poorest major city and a ravaged living symbol of deindustrialization, as well as a creative epicenter of art and culture and the birthplace of many revolutionary traditions. Our journal seeks to engage with the vast and varied coalition of the discontented in our country and with all people who are sincerely searching for a way out of despair with men and women of every creed and color who fight for peace and democracy. We embrace the responsibility of exploring questions that the people themselves have put on the table, questions of war and peace, of poverty, of democracy, and of our shared future with each other and all humanity. We are ultimately optimists about the future. Standing on the foundations of previous revolutions in our nation's history, the civil rights movement, the civil war and reconstruction era, and the revolution of 1776, we believe that a fourth American revolution is possible. Armed with the fire and force of new ideas, we are confident that the American people can make it so. And that's the statement. Um, yeah, it's changed a little bit over the past few weeks um, with a few suggestions and, and all of that. Um, but yeah, we really wanted this, I think, to, uh, I think, capture one, the like the moment of world history that we're living through. And I think to do justice, I think, to the possibilities of this time and sort of connected to that um, to capture in some ways, like 
there's like a universe of, of the way that the free school thinks that I think is very, um, I don't know, just very unique and very special and speak and I think has something to say to many different kinds of people, especially within the United States, but also around the world. Um, and so, and so, yeah, we really wanted to try to capture that that spirit with it, and also I think to, in some ways, recapture this concept of an avant-garde, which I think, um, even for me personally, I feel like I'd always associated uh, the avant like this term avant-garde with maybe like postmodern art in some ways, but I think that that is a consequence of the way that the ruling elite has tried to appropriate the avant-garde as something which is in some ways detached from the people, but we're trying to reclaim it in the spirit of um, revolutionary artists that we named in the statement, as well as, you know, the kind of the pillars of free school thinking, including Du Bois, King and Baldwin, in which the avant-garde is part of the freedom struggle and it's part of the forward movement of the people themselves. Um, and so kind of situating it within that, but um, yeah, really interested to hear what people think in response to the statement. Um, if you have, yeah, like thoughts on it, even suggestions, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, we really want this to be, I think, part of the life of free school as well and to kind of be an expansion of what the free school can do and how we can reach people. But yeah. Well, I've told you this already, um, but I think it's a perfect statement. I, I just feel like it captures, for me, I, I think like free school, we've been talking about science and knowledge and art. And then of course, jazz hand in hand for like so many months now. And I feel like this statement plus the direction, the formation of avant-garde, the journal will, is like a big leap, um, like a big step forward for even um, what the Saturday Free School is trying to achieve. And, and I, I had told you this before, but first of all, I really think it's important that we start with principles, like the two principles as defined by courage and science. And I just think that's because a lot of, even just talking about groups on the left, like those engaged in analysis or those engaged in like, yeah, have their own journals or podcasts, it's really rare to just start from, let's talk about, let's begin from the foundation of principles, like courage, wanting to be worthy of the people. And I feel like us saying courage in particular is like, puts us in the black freedom struggle, but also specifically Martin Luther King Jr. and his belief that there must be a revolution of values. And then science, like our, and you know, I feel like science really like draws from Du Bois and the fact that we really believe that there is such thing as the truth. Um, and, and also that humanity, like that, the belief that humanity already searches for the truth. Um, and then the other thing that, um, I just wanted to say is that I think, like, I think doc, you said this in the past week, but reading this avant-garde statement, the reason why it really moves me and why I think it's also important as we move forward is like I doc, I think Doc and King, you were talking about Martin Luther King Jr. where this saying or thought or basically the saying that um, the ruling elite, it is those who speak the truth and basically not just the truth, but those at the vanguard, like the ones who are pursuing the future, the, the revolutionary and futuristic 
vision that I think avant-garde is trying to help clarify and like give oxygen to and make space for. Um, it is those who are at the vanguard, it is those who speak the truth who are punished and those who speak the truth that are punished the most. And I think we're seeing that in this time more than ever, like to even, for example, suggest that there is such thing as a triad of opposition or to even say that Trump is not a fascist and that it is perhaps the Biden administration that is the most fascist regime in the world that must be defeated. Um, to say that there is a political rebellion in perhaps a pre-revolutionary period. I think to even say those things and then like, and then engage in the battle of ideas to show why and essentially like be part of helping expand, like expand the possibilities of like this country freeing itself and this country's people freeing itself that um, I think to do that is like a very dangerous thing. And that's why I think avant-garde is, I think the vision statement is really impressive and I'm really looking forward to um, seeing the first issue. Good. Well, I also wanted to reiterate something that as um, in our, my first reading, in our first reading of this um, mission statement from about a week ago, um, amongst some of the people who are writing articles, I just also wanted to say that um, I think it is unfortunately, but also so like rare that a journal that's dedicated to art, to Keith, like to, you know, journals often these days are very scholarly and narrow in their audiences and what they hope to, you know, they might present new knowledge or like that do have very important consequences, but they're meant to be almost read by a very select group of people. And the fact that this journal mission statement comes out and says, what is it? Like we see, we've, um, yeah, yeah, just addressing directly, like, sincerely searching for a way out of despair, the men and women of every creed and color who fight for peace and democracy and making the journal not only like something for them, but also like joining again what, you know, Emily was saying, like there's people who are already searching for the truth already. Uh, and those are just ordinary peace people, working people. And that I think that's actually a really cool thing that there's something um, this can not only offer, but be a part of. And I just think that just also helps, I think, broaden what um, is meant by avant-garde and reclaiming that as the property of the people. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think unfortunately in this time it's rare because I know in the past there are journals that have um, been where you know people publish to not only speak to intellectuals but to the broad masses. And yeah, I think with what even Kathy is saying, like the fact is that, like I like that statement as well within that says like avant-garde emerges out of the thinking of the free school and the activity of the free school where itself, it's not a journal that exists on its own, but actually with what, like the totality of what we're doing in free school, um, the relationships that we're building, the events um, celebrating the lives of various figures and freedom struggles. Because um, I think, like, it also reminds me of the tradition that we follow, um, and specifically Du Bois with, you know, the Crisis magazine, um, and Robeson with Freedom Ways, where they, like, those, um, 
were part of a, a broader political movement that was happening at their time. Uh, and I think that's why it's so important in the vision statement as well to speak to that, to speak to how, like what exactly is avant-garde trying to address for our times, the dis discontent within our country, and then also um, broadly uh, the trends that are happening in the world, um, the movements of the people. And I'm like really excited as well because it's, it's another way that we're able to reach people and um, uh, discuss these ideas that we're always working at um, around science, around art, because uh, that's the other important factor for like the crisis and freedom ways as well, where there is always art that was involved, like, you know, the art of um, Jacob Lawrence, Charles White, et cetera, like that was part of the, the, um, the vision of the magazine where it wasn't just existing on its own, but speaking to a worldview that it stood for. Because um, I do think there is a vision that the free school is trying to um, share with people and also win people over too. Uh, and so I'm, I know uh, other people, uh, other uh, free school members here have been more um, closely working on it. I'm super excited to uh, see what comes out of it, as always. One thing, too, about the magazine is that highlight what you said about it comes from the Saturday Free School, the ideas, the framework, the philosophy, the art, and whatnot, because one of the conversations while discussing what the issue is going to be and all that is like seeing what other journals, um, also kind of piggybacking what uh, Kathy said, other journals have like report on or talk about, whether that be different magazines that are like popular, or I even wasn't really even thinking about the academic journals group. But that is to say, like, um, avant-garde as a part of like this vanguard um, sets will set a new pace um, for the discourse or public discourse. Um, and one of the important things about that is that we have all the wind, I feel like the wind is like at our backs with what it is that we will kind of like pull out so that be of different archives or even write to and about. Like our ideas will help open up um, other conversations and you know debates that should be had, and that's also an exciting thing for I guess all of us because we can have confidence in a certain type of originality that's connected with our studies of philosophy and our studies of King and the movement. Um, so it's like coming out of something concrete like something actual, the freedom struggle and emerging in a new period in time, which is also breathing new life um, in, into like a positive um, outlook, a positive vision for the future, a positive analysis. Um, so that's, a, that's one of the things that I'm excited about, the certain kind of take that we have and originality of our like, you know, for me, I'm thinking about like the design and, um, 
you know, the, the symbol, symbolism behind it and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a very excellent vision statement. And the thing that I, I like is its optimism. Just, you know, I've been going back and forth being a part of the editorial group. Uh, I would just, just one thing I think we need to look at, and that's the question of war and the war industrial economy and peace and the peace industrial economy. Just, I think, you know, if we could find a way to put that in. Uh, one of the things that we said, and this is apropos what um, what Kathy was saying about journals usually being narrowly conceived and narrowly focused. Uh, what we're talking about is something broadly focused, broadly conceived. Um, but also we said that um, uh, this journal would see its primary audience as the young generation who are the targets of much of the ideological propaganda of the ruling elite. Um, uh, there's one other thing. Um, you know, just like um, Emily's article, which she's working on, Trotskyism, a warning to the youth, um, and um, uh, Kathy's essay on free jazz, communism. This is very, very important, both of these, because the issue of music and the issue of extreme or, or sectarian ideological positions are very important. Um, and then, of course, you know, I know that... Um, that we're going to have, we're proposed to have some of uh, Michelle's photography in it, and of course, uh, the graphics, how we present it in terms of the graphics, uh, is going to be very, very important. So I think, I think it's going to be very, very significant. I like the fact that the first issue is going to be dedicated to Henry Winston. Mm -hmm. I think for all kinds of reasons, you know, I'm working on an article now for, for Avant-Garde on Henry Winston. And in writing it, I'm discovering so much in particular about uh, how a scientific thinker thinks. Mm. It's, it's larger and, and he's, he's more than meets the eye. So, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly add, I think um, it was a recent addition and suggestion from Doc to change, to tweak the, the title of the journal from, it was originally, it was like a journal of peace, democracy, and philosophy. And then Doc had suggested expanding it to peace, democracy, and science. And um, in some ways, well, one, it's because philosophy itself is a science. Like, you know, how Doc has said, like a science of sciences. And but I think it's also interesting because it's like, yeah, there's like this whole constellation of thinking, like a whole constellation of thought that the free school is like reaching towards and able to able to encompass like the fact that we can talk about 
someone like Henry Winston and in the same conversation talk about like quantum physics and AI and all that stuff. And to show that there is an underlying also unity to all of these questions. Um, and then someone like Winston and Du Bois, you know, exemplifying kind of revolutionary science that needs to be re understood for this time, but also to be developed further for the, um, the crisis of this moment. And how can you actually develop a science that reflects that? And this is just a small anecdote, but um, yesterday, um, Kathy brought Nuri and I along to um, an art exhibit showing by Jane Irish, who is a Philadelphia-based artist who um, Kathy had invited to the Korea-Vietnam event in 2022. And a few of us had, had gone to meet with Jane um, after that event at her in her studio or apartment um, in like somewhere, was it like Fishtown or something? But um, but yeah, it was just really interesting because I really like Jane's art. Um, but what was really interesting is that it's almost like there is a sense that like what she saw at our event, the free schools event on Korea, Vietnam has in some ways like influenced, I think also like some of the newer art that she's made, I think, or at least that's the sense that I get because she was really happy to see us. And also like, this is just a we were the only like non-white people in the room, which is kind of funny because um, also it shows like the art world and how there's like there is a lot of money in it. And basically all of it is propped up by like all of these like wealthy white people in like in it was like an old city. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just like I think it's people like that, like people like Jane, you know, like all of the people that also we build relationships with that we encounter in Philly. You know, people like Bobby Zankel and the wonderful sound five, six, seven, um, and you know, people in the nation of Islam, you know, just like this very like very unique constellation of people who are, you know, thinking along a similar track of thought that we are. And um, yeah, I just feel like we have a lot to bring to the table. And I think it's it's like I'm just beginning to realize in some ways like how is it that the ideas that we are developing, how is it that they can be used by people? Like, how is it that they can actually become part of the lives of people? Um, and yeah, I don't know, just, it was just like seeing Jane's art, which was like kind of a living example of that. And yeah, it just made me a lot more excited about um, the journal because I think art will be a big part of it as Serafina was saying. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know, I'm really excited. Um, but you know, I guess. Yeah, I wanted to add, uh, like, you know, this conversation is, I think it's really um, useful because uh, like when you were um, reading out the mission statement, Jeremiah, I was thinking that, you know, this really sort of is an attempt to capture the philosophy of the free school. And like this, uh, like the idea of, I think, you know, adding science to the question of, of you know courage and philosophy it makes me think that you know we are not really talking about um so much the product of science as to the method and that's where uh, i think it's inseparable from the question of knowledge which you're also talking about in you know the mission statement about like, like how we talk about knowledge in the preschool how we see knowledge and the direction of knowledge and uh like you know this is where 
like you know the fact that the left sees knowledge as you know top down this is the feature of like in you know, our times and we have talked before about how like in you know, one of the like the ways that this came about was the separation from like the intelligence from the intellectual left from you know the working class and this really makes me think that um, okay like we are talking about these ideas of knowledge and philosophy which which i mean it's really uh, yeah it's almost surprising that this is so much tied along with the question of science and the methods of science because when we go back like you know when we uh, like in i mean when we start studying like the philosophies behind science like there have been you know many opposing ideas and ideas being worked out and you know today like it's very clear that uh, some of the uh, like like you know, only some of the the philosophical trends of the past have sort of won over and you know we we have reached this kind of a like a mechanical understanding of you know what science is what logic is but you know the like the fact remains that you know these were questions being worked out and we are really trying to go back to that you know like we um we are trying to go back to to these questions and work them out for our times because we don't know what the answers are going to be and this is something that needs to be worked out today and yeah i i think it's really it's 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 really uh, i don't know what the word is but i i feel really surprised and also grateful that uh, like you know how we talk about knowledge and ideas of the free school they are completely aligned with the questions of working out the philosophies of science which which you know like which humanity has embarked on forever it's yeah it's 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 really something um, unexpected almost i just small thing to add is you know uh i agree with doc i think the optimism that comes through in the vision statement is one of the things that makes it so impressive because it's such a breath of fresh air in a time when whenever people want to talk about crisis they focus on the you know gloom and doom that people can't really do anything and you know we just have to resign ourselves to the fact that human beings are just corrupt and there's no way out but i think a strong assertion that there is a way out and that it's the people who will find the way out and the solution to the problems of this time i mean it's a simple thing but it's a statement that needs to be made with you know uh, a lot of conviction and strength and the other thing that the vision statement made me um uh, think was of you know intellectual activity in general or the need for intellectual activity especially in times of crisis i think intellectual activity has fallen into disrepute um there is a it sort of become the purview of experts and elites and so on because the fundamental role that intellectual activity be it science or philosophy was supposed to serve was to take people forward was to take humanity as a whole forward in under, in understanding themselves and the nature of the world they inhabit better with passing time but since that sort of got compromised uh with the building of this world order intellectual activity in general among the people has fallen into disrepute people don't trust it but then you know this asserts that no i mean if you look at all world movements if you look at all times of crisis and revolution it has engendered a period of intense theorizing and formulating new ideas and new principles on on the basis of which a movement forward could be envisioned 
and some ways it's not even new ideas that i mean i mean a recentering of ideas because in some ways these ideas are timeless um and i mean centered on very universal things that that are timeless but it really brings out you know once again the need for intellectual activity but intellectual activity bent towards the service of human beings which i think came out very beautifully it's a great statement love it <laughs> Yeah, I really love the statement too cuz I think um Shambarta said method and I think another word that comes to mind is like the process which is like what is the process by which we know the truth or come to know the truth and I feel like it's not it's not just about logic I think but the question of whether it's an individual who makes an intellectual contribution or really whether it's like a collective or even like the people and I feel like part of it is that we I think a lot of what academically or what people like say is like the truth is like the person who's the most far removed from society like making certain decisions or like basically saying that the truth is not social in any way and i feel like what we're asserting is that actually no like the like truth is also not only does it bend towards the people but it comes from the people and yeah i just feel like that's something that's really exciting for me because also i feel like the way that we're going to write the articles is not just like each of us like sitting in a room and like thinking and being like okay like now we're just going to publish the article but i feel like it comes out of a lot of conversation amongst like members of the free school amongst like like throughout all of our practice cuz i was also thinking about jane and she like one of the themes that she's kind of into these days is like the cosmos <laughs> and that's like really interesting to me because it's like she paints i guess like sort of interiors but then also like the vietnam war and like the veterans of the vietnam war and this anti-war like the striving for peace and how it's in the vietnamese people but also not separate it's not a separate question from the american people and i feel like that combined with like this thing of the cosmos like this all encompassing like totality i find really interesting um but i think it's like that we feed off of like we gain something from everything that we see in the people and i feel like the hope is that people in reading also feel like their world view is supported or that their world view matters um and that basically every person's contribution means something greater to like this whole striving of humanity and yeah so i think i'm looking forward to like the process of this first issue coming out like how we'll respond to like what we get from like feedback and like other comments and stuff about the first issue and then just going from there continually. Um and then there are also a few comments um about the journal so maybe I'll read those. Um but first like Todd Future Homestead BK Jacob and brother Gregory and Stanley Eugene Wood all say good morning. Um Stanley Stan Wood says, "I look forward to reading Avant-Garde. I'm impressed with its philosophical underpinnings." And then Todd says, "Beautiful statement." Layat says, "Good morning. Really love the Avant-Garde mission statement and so excited for the first issue." And then Brother Gregory says, "May Allah bless you with continued success. Much love for the Saturday Free School." And so I feel like people are also pretty <laughs> excited. <laughs> so I feel like we're all excited. So hmm. Yeah, one last thing I wanted to say um for the journal before the next part of free school today is um I think 
what Porba said about intellectual activity, I think, reminded me of, like, another way of, I guess, putting it is the struggle of ideas, like, the ideological struggle. And, yeah, I just feel like part of how, I guess, we can interpret the current moment is that the struggle of ideas itself has taken on almost like a new kind of character in this moment of American history, like a new kind of significance in which for the people to be engaged in the struggle of ideas, which is another way of saying for the people to be engaged in the search for truth, that this has a democratic essence to it. And that it is the, and it is in some ways like the fundamental democratic question of like, how is it that people like ordinary people, the masses of people can come together and actually define like a shared philosophy upon which to define like a new nation, like a new society. And like it is in that in some ways, like what the free school, like what we do is like one is we are committed to this pursuit of truth and clarity. And at the same time, like we want to make this this struggle of ideas something which is part of the world, like the life world of people, just like people in general. And um, and yeah, no, I don't. I guess that's just something that I've been thinking about lately, um, as part of yeah, like the method, like the practice of free school, and also what we hope that this journal can do, um, which is yeah, to like make that struggle of ideas something which is organic, to insist that this is something organic to. Um, ordinary people already and that by engaging in this search for truth that this also means something and it has an impact on the capacity of the people on the democratic capacity of the people to decide for themselves what will be the future um, but yeah I just wanted to add that uh, and I guess I can with that we can hand it over to Doc who's going to talk about um, yeah, a theory and practice of the state in this moment of crisis, and then also bring in Du Bois and why he's relevant for this time. You're muted, Doc. Thank you very much, Jeremiah, and good morning to everybody. And I'd like to just give a shout out to a real good friend of the free school who's going through certain health questions right now. You all, I think most of us know Bilal Taylor. Uh, just wanna you know, extend our best wishes. I know he listens to the free school on Saturdays. Uh, you know, in, in this crisis that we're uh, living through in the United States, seldom is it uh, thought about or talked about as a crisis of the state. Uh, we hear bandied about regularly this idea of the deep state. Uh, that is not uh, what I'm going to talk about. In fact, I think that the concept of the deep state is more connected to conspiracy theories rather than historically constituted uh, mechanisms of power and authority in a society. Uh, we're not talking about a small group of people operating in the shadows who have somehow taken over the government. 
behind the backs of the people. We're talking about, in the case of the United States, uh, an over 200 year uh, institution, which itself uh, is the fundamental achievement of the American Revolution. I want to uh, return to that, the American Revolution and the establishment of the American state. Uh, but before that, uh, I want to uh, say a couple of things. When we talk about the state, uh, especially uh, professional and academic uh, political scientists, they will either refer to the state as the modern state, uh, sometimes the bourgeois state, but more often the liberal state. Uh, now this is quite important because previous to the bourgeois revolutions of the 16th, uh, 17th, 18th and 19th, and then going into the 20th century, um, previous to that, the state was associated with or identified with uh, a sovereign. Uh, and usually the sovereign was a king, an emperor, uh, sometimes a religious leader, some, sometimes a combination of all of those things. But the king or the queen uh, was a representative, even as understood back in those times, a representative of the sovereignty of the people. The Chinese emperor was a representative of the sovereignty of the singularness of the Chinese people their language, their customs, their religion, um, even their diversity. Uh, so the emperor was a representative of their sovereignty, of their unity, of their singularity, of their oneness. Uh, the same would be the case, uh, let us say, for the king or queen of England. Uh, and on and on and on. However, with the bourgeois democratic revolutions, by which we mean the achievement of state power in the name of democracy uh, by a class which had previously been on the margins of state power. In other words, a bourgeoisie, a capitalist class existed under uh, uh, what we would call feudal conditions or non-modern conditions, the ancient um, uh, Chinese uh, uh, regime um, or the uh, British regime, the king, as the sovereign, the queen as the sovereign, uh, even in those times, you had a capitalist class. The capitalist class is very old. 
However, the capitalist class as a contender for power with the previous uh, classes that controlled the state is more recent. In other words, it goes back to the 16th century. So the modern bourgeoisie, the modern capitalist class, as opposed to its pre-modern forms, uh, is a class that one contended for power and secondly, uh, ultimately shared power with uh, the landlords, the previous uh, 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 managers of and, and, and authorities of the state. What is qualitatively new in the capitalist or bourgeois class achieving power is that one, well, this is not new. I mean, in, in every state, they, they contested for power in the name of the people, but what is new in the name of democracy. Uh, democracy, demos people rule, rule in the name of the people or rule by the people. So the modern bourgeoisie said, we're not just speaking on our own behalves, but we're speaking in the name of the people and thus of democracy. Very important. And in the struggle with the landlords, the, uh, uh, the aristocracy, uh, and other classes that constituted the state in pre-modern times, uh, they said that we represent the people and their aspiration to rule and to be ruled democratically. Now, the other thing, and this is hugely significant in understanding the American Revolution. Whereas in earlier forms of state power and rule, an individual represented the nation and represented the people, Chinese emperor, uh, British uh, king or queen, and hence, the king or queen or emperor was the sovereign. Sovereignty, a representative of that. And believe me, emperors and kings and queens uh, never saw themselves as a substitute, but as a representative of the people. And as a representative, he or she was considered the sovereign, the sovereign. In the case of the American Revolution, law was sovereign, not an individual. Hence, the rule of law is what is new, and hence, all future revolutionaries, uh, especially of the 20th century, but of the 19th century. Of course, 
uh, Marx, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in the Communist Manifesto, when they talk about the working class and the class struggle in the middle of the 19th century, what they were talking about is a new democracy in Europe and the sweeping aside of all of the um, vestiges of personal rule, of, of sovereignty being um, associated with an individual. What Marx and Engels argued for is what the American Revolution had achieved, a state form not associated with an individual, but with law. In fact, uh, when, when the French Revolution unfolded, what they were pushing for the French revolutionaries was an end to a monarch or a king or queen as the sovereign and the elevation of law as sovereign. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hence, the relationship of the state to the people was guaranteed by law in the case of the United States by the Constitution. And the word Constitution is from the word to constitute, the verb to constitute. And what is being constituted is the state. Mm -hmm. what, what is the state? What gives it its identity and definition? What are the principles upon which the state is constituted? Hence, what is the relationship of the state to democracy and to the people? For bourgeois democracy and certainly for the United States, it is the law and the constitution representing the supreme law of the land. And that is why the legal institution which interprets the constitution is known as the Supreme Court, suggesting that the law that it upholds and defends is the supreme law of the nation. With all of the other contradictions, paradoxes, and imperfections of the American Revolution, uh, thus making necessary succeeding attempts to expand, deepen, and transform democracy. However, with all of the inadequacies, shortcomings, and failings of the American Revolution, its great historic achievement is to establish law and the constitution as the ultimate authority, the ultimate sovereign. Okay. The ultimate center of power and authority in society. Hugely significant.
However, the class interest of the capitalist class uh, made it objectively incapable of realizing, of carrying out all of that which it had stated in its rise to power and in its constitution. For example, the Declaration of Independence written by uh, Thomas Jefferson for the most part. We declare these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, meaning that all citizens exist under a common legal framework which makes them all equal before the law. An objective criterion, the law, not to be trivialized, not to be underestimated, although at the same time, not to be seen as infallible and not to be seen as often, most times distorted, especially at times of crises. Just from a philosophical standpoint, after the American and French revolutions, uh, philosophical discourse uh, is different. Modern philosophical discourse. Uh, and there were pre-revolutionary um, urges uh, in philosophy towards democracy uh, and towards a law-based uh, state. Um, we see it in Descartes. Rationalism itself is not only a method of achieving knowledge and the truth, but it also is a way of saying that we are all equal because we're all rational. Uh, which is another way when transposed into state discourse about the state, we are all equal because we're all rational and because we're all rational, we can all understand the law and the responsibility of citizenship. This all sounds familiar, I am certain. We hear it often in political and um, uh, legal discourse. Uh, I think as time has gone on, a lot of what is fundamental uh, about this has been lost or erased. Uh, the urge towards reason and rationality and the sense that knowledge can be achieved by everyone, including every citizen, uh, means that uh, if reason is the highest uh, value, uh, then reasonable people can create 
a society which predisposes uh, itself towards knowledge, towards science, towards improvement and progress. You know, it makes sense. It makes sense. And so after the French Revolution, Immanuel Kant, uh, who uh, is, I will, Danny has almost convinced me, I guess I've said it, I'm not certain, that uh, Kant is my favorite philosopher, my favorite modern philosopher. And I would say yes and no, I mean, but I do like Kant. And I like Kant when you really understand his life and his politics. Kant supported the French Revolution, but not only the French Revolution, but its most radical wing, the communards or communists and the Jacobins. Um, Hegel following Kant in his student days and afterwards, was a defender of the French Revolution. And in his writings on history, Kant believed that the end stage or the begin the end of one stage and the beginning of another in the intellectual development of humanity, uh, the end stage of the old and the beginning of the new is when a state of reason is established by which he could clearly be thinking about a state where law is sovereign and law being uh, a manifestation of reason and for Hegel of absolute reason and hence, with the establishment of that state, and here I think many people get Kant wrong, I mean, pardon me, Hegel wrong and narrow what he's talking about. He is talking about a state of science, a state of philosophy, a state of reason, hence a state of law. Utopian indeed. But I think you, you did where I'm coming from. Earlier writers like Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his various writings differentiated uh, the state of nature mm -hmm. and uh, the state of civil society. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is uh, grossly misunderstood. Uh, Sometimes in anthropological discourses, it was framed as uh, the state of barbarism versus the state of civil society or civilization. Now, by barbarism or by the state of nature, what they meant is that mode of human, social, economic, cultural existence before the emergence of the state. So it was pretty much the early communist or collective form of social human existence, which existed for a couple of hundred thousand years. In other words, 
using Rousseau and um, um, uh, Hobbes's, and also I could say John Locke's uh, framing of matters. Human beings existed more like natural creatures. There was not a great separation of the state of nature, of peacefulness, of collectivity, of communism, uh, of little conflict, etc. You you know what I'm saying. Humans were different, of course, because we had language, uh, we had a level of consciousness. But in terms of the social organization, they would say we were more uh, in the state of nature, which they also some people call barbarism, which was not necessarily a bad word, but it was pre-civilization uh, or pre-state form. Now, already implied in the word civilization is civil. Civil meaning law, meaning citizenship, meaning in fact, obligation to a larger whole. So the state form in the long history of what are called anatomically modern human beings who go back about 200,000 years ago in natural evolution, most of that period we've lived in communal small groups, be they agricultural producers or nomads or herders, or uh, or such, uh, and if you look at the ancient evolution of human beings, we see these early forms, and many of them continue to exist even up till today. The nomadic form, nomads, are a form of the early communal form. The tribal organization, Tribe has gotten a very bad name these days or recently. Tribe is not a bad thing. It is a form of extended family, of extended bloodline. So when a pe even today you get a, tr a, a tribe, a people call themselves a tribe of several million people or more. Well, what it's referencing back to is its origins in common blood, common family or extended family ties, common language, okay? But that was a tribal form. It was a communal form which transitioned, evolved, and changed. But that's the early form of human social organization. Human social organization before the state before the existence of the state. The state as we know it can be traced back, and this is iffy, eight to 10,000 years ago. So if you take anatomically modern human beings, 200,000 year history, uh, 190,000 of those years were pre-state. The state comes into existence 
at a certain period. For example, in ancient Egypt, the uniting of upper and lower Egypt, the uh, damming up and management of the Nile to fertilize uh, agricultural land. All of this required more than um, small uh, communities which cooperated or didn't cooperate uh, managing uh, their lives in the economic and technological development. With the uniting of Upper and Lower Egypt, a new pharaonic, by which we mean a government, a state of pharaohs, the pharaoh as the sovereign, having also attributed, and this is the mythology and ritual of the state, attributing to the pharaoh religious and um, divine characteristics, uh, which should not be interpreted to mean that he is divine, but that the Egyptian people are a divine and special people and the Pharaoh is their representative. Um, Pharaonic Egypt existed, the time frame of its existence is longer than everything that has come after it. The Pharaonic state existed for 5,000 years. General stability, although not absolute stability. There were civil wars, power struggles, ideological struggles uh, going on. Very fascinating. Uh, the outlier was the Greek city-state uh, and the state that unites them being a federation of many city-states, the small form as opposed to the large uh, state uh, like Egypt was. However, I say all of that to say that uh, a little over 300 years ago, the modern state comes into existence. And that is what we are engaged in and the crisis of the state that we are experiencing is a crisis of modernity. Now, there is more obscurantism and um, I don't know how else to put it, fictionalizing of the state uh, than of, maybe of any other issue in political science. Uh, I don't know that state theory is an important part of political science discourse, academic or otherwise. Uh, most discussions of the state 
turn out to be descriptions of the government. And the government and the state are not the same thing. The state is the ultimate center of authority and power in a society. The government operates within the framework of a state and is just that, the mode of governing a society. The government does not challenge the state for power. The government operates as a um, derivative of the state itself. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that is what is going on in the United States. And hence, you know, fast forward to 2023, 2024, the crisis of the state cannot be reduced to a crisis of government or crisis of political parties or crisis of elections. And we in the free school are more than justified to see the crisis as a profound and systemic crisis anchored to the crisis of the state. Just one small thing. Often a crisis of the state like we are experiencing is called a, crisis, a constitutional crisis. Now, if you go back to what we have previously said, the constitution constituted the state. The crisis, a constitutional crisis is a crisis of the terms upon which the state has been constituted, including the relationship between the state as an institution and being made up of multiple other institutions. The constitutional crisis is a crisis of the state and its relationship to the citizens. To the citizens. One, one small other point. The nation and the state are not the same thing. Often we will talk about the nation state. Actually, what is being said is the state of a particular nation or the fact that the nation is constituted by the state. For example, the question of language is not a haphazard or um, non-important question. The state establishes first national boundaries, national culture, but the language, the common language of a nation. Okay. The nation uh, is not the state, 
but it is constituted by the state, the modern nation, the modern nation state. Okay. Um, so let me, I just wanted to kind of clarify those things. You know, the first great constitutional crisis in the history of the United States was not long after the founding of the U.S. state and the adoption of the Constitution. And that crisis led to the first 10 amendments because the people who had fought for a revolution to separate from England, those people said, well, we want our rights as citizens protected the right to speech and to dissent, the right to bear arms to protect oneself, the right uh, of, of habeas corpus, I think that's the Fourth Amendment, to be brought before um, uh, a court, not to be charged with something and kept in jail for 20 years without coming before court that could adjudicate whatever you did. Uh, all of these first 10 amendments came as a result of a constitutional crisis not long after the American Revolution and not long after the Constitution had been adopted. But the other great American constitutional crisis was the Civil War and Reconstruction. The third was the, the African-American freedom struggle. We can go back over all of those. I just want to make one other distinction. Fascism and bourgeois democracy are two forms of state rule, the rule of the state. The classes that make up and define the state. In this case, the capitalist class, increasingly smaller and smaller, of course, as time has gone by. But um, democracy generally is rule where elections and citizens choose their government, which is also a way by voting and choosing a government that citizens are saying that we accept the basic foundation of the state and how it is constituted, but we have a right to choose the government and policies uh, within the framework of a given state. You could also say, to make it more current, within the framework of the Constitution. That's basically what we call bourgeois democracy, by which the bourgeoisie controls the state, defines the state, dispenses power and authority based on its particular class interests, which it defines as a democratic aspiration Okay. Uh, 
But within that framework, the people have certain rights and responsibilities uh, commensurate with the state and the way it was constituted. Let me say it again. Even in a democratic state, a bourgeois democratic state, the citizens do not have a right to overturn the state. And that's why in the United States we have sedition laws, we have treason laws, we have prohibitions against rebellion or revolution against the state. The assumption being that the state and the authority of the state makes democracy possible. Again, within this discourse is the assumption that the state itself is democratic. That's a huge assumption that the state, because it is democratic, it makes democracy, i.e. rule of the people, or better in our case, govern, government at the will, based upon the will of the people through elections. Now, of course, there's a lot of fiction here, a lot of assumptions that have to be made. But nonetheless, that is the form that we are operating under in the United States. However, there is democracy as a form of, of capitalist state rule, and then there is fascism. That the ruling class, especially in the stage of empire and, and imperialism, believes or feels in a moment of crisis that democracy has to either be severely limited or done away with. That's why in Nazi Germany, they created this institution known as the Führer, our leader, that laws and democracy are inadequate in a time of crisis to express the cultural uh, aspirations of a people. In this case, Hitler and the Nazis would say of the German people. Bourgeois law, they said, they would say, has failed us. And of course, modern Germany has a very limited history of democracy. Modern Germany comes into existence in 1871 with the rise of Bismarck and what is called the First Reich. Right means empire. Why they used empire, I'm not quite certain. But then there was a second right, and Hitler called his regime the third right. 
And, you know, Hitler was very, uh, and the Nazis were very clear about the fact that they, in rejecting bourgeois democratic forms, were going back to the um, pre-modern cultural characteristics of the German people. But fascism is bourgeois rule under conditions of profound and existential crisis. That is what fascism is. Can you say that again? Uh, fascism is bourgeois rule under conditions of crisis. When the ruling class is unable to rule in the old way because of a crisis of legitimacy. They therefore dispense with democratic forms and establish authoritarian, uh, anti-democratic or non-democratic forms of rule. They do away with elections. Okay. And it is the response of the capitalists, especially the most powerful ones, and the political classes and those who dominate or control the institutions of the state, if they feel they are existentially threatened, they will do away with democracy and establish fascism or authoritarian non-democratic forms of bourgeois rule. Democracy and fascism as forms of rule of the capitalist class are the same in essence, in their class essence. It is the same class that is the final authority. We can do some tweaking of that. I, it's, um, now, um, as I've said, you know, this language of deep state, is the deep state the state? Is that what you're trying to say? Right. Or is the deep state a part of the state? Or It's unclear, and it does not clarify the nature of the state unless uh, you want to say the deep state or the state, the rule that is obscured by democracy or democratic forms uh, is a deep state, is an obscure um, uh, institution. In other words, most discussions about democracy never talk about the state. Can you have literally democratic forms, quote unquote, democratic forms and the rituals of people's rule with the people less able to exert any authority over anything? In other words, you can have elections every day, but unless the people are empowered that is to say, unless the state is also democratic, you can vote you know, every other day and have elections every other week. 
and still not have what is in essence democracy. In other words, and I think this is what we face, democratic forms, i.e. elections, the appearance of freedom of speech and legal protections uh, and all of that, while democracy is less now than it was 200 years ago. Because the state is less democratic than it has been probably since the Civil War. An anti-democratic state, which in the interest of obscuring the fact that it's not democratic, uh, carries on the rituals and appearances of democracy when the majority of people have fewer rights than ever. Um, you know, so just to go quickly, what we're looking at, especially uh, the way uh, the architecture of the current crisis of the state is manifesting itself. Uh, this 2024 election is an election in a crisis of the state. Hence, can the ruling class rule in the old way? That they're not, when you use, when Lenin used that language, he is not talking about can it govern in the old way? Can it rule? Can the state can still or continue to exert its authority over the people and do the people willingly accept their authority. Another way to put it, can the authority of the elites which we associated, associate with uh, being part of the state of connected to state power as defending existing state power. Can that rule continue and do the people accept it? Now, this is a crisis of the state crying out for resolution. In crises like this, there are usually two uh, competing and fundamentally different resolutions. One is to do away with democratic forms complete, completely. The second is to reform the state and thus giving the ruling elite the, uh, the hand of going before the people and saying, look, we have reformed. We have expanded the parameters of people's power. For example, the Civil War, which emerges out of a crisis of, of the state. And one side 
went for secession to preserve slavery. The other side went for unity to limit slavery. At the end of the day, slavery had to be abolished. And three amendments giving the former slaves rights to citizenship. That was a resolution of a constitutional crisis. But after Reconstruction, the state reconstitutes itself under bourgeois rule and says, well, we're going to take back those reforms that came out of the Civil War and Reconstruction. The Civil Rights of Black Freedom Movement, the same thing, a constitutional crisis. Now, we're involved now in a crisis of the state. Uh, in a sense, the fact that the deep state is so much a part of, of current discourse suggests that among wide swaths of the American public, the idea of a state which operates behind the backs of and in con contradiction to the interests of the people is now on the table. And of course, Donald Trump is seen as an enemy of the state and is treated as such. Okay. Um, for example, you know, we've talked about Richard Haas, former uh, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, we've talked about um, uh, Martin Wolf uh, and Raju's uh, review of his book. Uh, what both of them are saying in different ways, for instance, Martin Wolf is saying, that we have to reconstitute, we have to reform the state mm. in ways that will overcome the crisis of legitimacy where people are saying the state and the government, the elites don't represent us. The state has to be reformed. It has to be reformed from Martin Wolf's point of view in a democratic way, a new democracy, under bourgeois rule. Mm -hmm. uh, Raju concludes it might be too late for that. Richard Haas is saying the U.S. state, which is a super state, a state which can nullify or wants to be able as a hegemon to nullify the actions and interests of states of other nations. Mm -hmm. That is what we could call a super state. What Richard Haas is saying is that the disenchantment of tens of millions of Americans with the state makes it difficult for the United States as hegemon to operate as a super state, an imperial state, a state of an empire in the modern world. And he says, the greatest threat to U.S. security and national interest, meaning imperialism, the greatest threat does not come from China or Russia, but comes from the American people themselves. 
And therefore, for Haas, maybe Martin Wolf, but for the ruling, uh, ruling class, the ruling elite, and its narrative, Donald Trump is seditionist, treasonous, and a threat to the state. Donald Trump, in his defense, and his narrative is accepted by tens of millions of people. What Donald Trump says is that the state has been captured by a small elite of neoliberals and war makers at the peril of the American people and of democracy. The state and its agents and agencies have defined Trump as anti-American, as a criminal, as breaking the law, and as uh, a threat to democracy, which is to be read as a threat to the rule of the ruling elite, their control over the state. Um, well, just, I, I guess I was hitting on this. The US state has evolved, especially since World War II, into a hegemonic or super state, a state that can rule the world and rule other nations and overturn uh, governments and the state of other nations. For example, uh, one of the great problems for the American ruling elite, which, which is committed to an American empire and to American imperialism, one of their great problems is the coalescing of major nations uh, into BRICS plus, BRICS plus, uh, BRICS plus six, you know, or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the treaties between Russia and China uh, creating a strategic alliance that an attack upon the Russian state is seen by the Chinese as an attack upon the Chinese state. Any effort to overthrow the Russian state is viewed by the Chinese as threatening to its interests mm -hmm. as the Chinese state and vice versa. Mm -hmm. This meaning that the U.S. cannot pick off Russia and say to China, we can be your friend for the time being, or pick off China and say to Russia, if you unite with us, uh, we'll make it worth your while, at least for the elites. Or the inability to stop the inexorable movement towards a Afro-Asiatic reconfiguration of the planet by which we mean that the state of, for example, countries like Cuba, Iran, uh, the People's Democratic Republic of Korea, smaller nations 
their state is more powerful and more defendable if they are in alliance with nation states who see themselves being targeted by the U.S. military, the U.S. empire, U.S. imperialism. Um, so the crisis of the state domestically is the crisis of the U.S. superstate, another way to put it. The crisis of the U.S. state parallels a new crisis of neocolonialism. This is a huge moment in world history and in the history of the United States. The American people, in ways that I don't think any of us can remember, in fact, I don't think ever has existed in quite this way. The US people are now a player in world terms because as they become more disenchanted with the US state and the elites that manage it, to that extent do they weaken the state and force agents of the state to make very difficult choices. In other words, do we move to a complete restriction upon freedom of speech? Mm in the name of protecting freedom of speech. Now, this is not me saying it. This was published in the New York Times a couple weeks ago. It, does freedom of speech in the era of Trump have to be limited in order to uh, protect freedom of speech? Isn't that a paradox? Mm -hmm. Or um, uh, another essay that was in the New York Times, does... Uh, or do we have to limit elections and find other ways of choosing presidents and senators and congressmen than through elections? Should we not go back to the uh, classic form of Greek democracy? You, know, you, you see where I'm going with this. And they're arguing this which suggests that important thinkers and players within the state, within the ruling elite, have, um, have been discussing what must be done if we are to prevent the movement represented by Donald Trump coming to power in 2024 on a platform of attacking the legitimacy of the state as an anti-democratic, anti-American citizen, anti-American people institution. And that's basically what he's running on. Mm -hmm. And therefore, and here's why you know you could see the equation and you could see the truth of it, of the people versus the state, as it were. Every time he is indicted, his polling numbers go up. And not only among, here we go, white racist, quote unquote, because everybody, if you oppose the state, you must be a racist or collaborator with them. 
But what we see is his polling numbers going up among groups that most people had thought Trump would never have any chance of winning to them, to him. And in particular, and this is the most sensitive, decisive one, the African-American voters. The more they attack Trump, increasingly, and this is slow, it's not being shouted from the rooftops, black people see someone who is victimized by the legal and state system the way many of them have been over centuries. What these polling numbers say is that the people see the state as overstepping its boundaries. The criminalization of Trump is the state criminalizing a person that it defines as its enemy, not that the people define as their enemy. Um, I just want to kind of end on one last thing. The relevance of Du Boisian thinking to understanding these matters. You know, um, sometimes in American academic and intellectual discourse, when a thinker that the ruling elite have uh, attempted to erase and trivialize when suddenly the ideas of that thinker begin to gain traction and respectability among broad sections of the people, the ruling class usually will embrace that thinker in order to destroy them or the meaning of their thought. Uh, so it's not unusual in times like this to see a lot of people uh, identifying or associating with the name Du Bois uh, and to carry out a practice that has nothing to do with Du Bois. You got the picture, but you don't have the substance. And the fact of the matter is you want the picture to give yourself authenticity in order to undermine the substance of Du Bois. We see that happening. Um, uh, we see um, the trivialization of Du Bois in magazines, so-called progressive or left magazines, like The Nation, um, and any number of uh, podcasts that deal with black issues, you'll hear uh, the name of Du Bois and the interest in Du Bois. And Du Bois, at the end of his life, was a communist. And, and you know, I'm listening to all of this. I'm saying, well, you just found that out? Uh, but yet you are down with Du Bois. Now, you're down with Du Bois because you can't get down with nothing else. Everything else that was tried has fallen by the wayside uh, and, and such. But if Du Bois is anything, 
And Du Boisian theory stands for anything. Du Bois is a theorist, a historian, a sociologist of the crisis of bourgeois democracy. He is a theorist of crisis, hence a theorist of the state. Uh, and it's in everything from the souls of black folk uh, uh, through black reconstruction uh, and on and on. Uh, he is a theorist of crisis. He is not a theorist of empty activism. So I say to those people who want to use Du Bois as some kind of uh, uh, justification for random, anarchistic, purposeless uh, activism, uh, you are not doing Du Bois, you're doing you. And you're doing something more akin to postmodern uh, virtue signaling uh, primarily of white elites and intellectuals uh, who want to exonerate or separate themselves from the vast masses of white working people who they have defined as racist. And now they're going to use, attempt to use Du Bois to justify their empty narrative and to give reason and authenticity uh, to their aimless, empty activism. Um, so Du Bois is a thinker for this time. Uh, we in the Free School have talked about a Du Bois-Lenin thesis. Uh, we have talked about Du Bois and Lenin being spoken of uh, as parallel scientific thinkers by Henry Winston, uh, et, et cetera. Uh, so with that, I'll end. Thank you. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that was... That was really crazy. We have some, uh, someone in the comments, Future Homestead was saying, I'm glad to be alive in this amazing moment in history. And I think people, I think really appreciate, but also like even for me, it's very, um, like it gets the mind going. And I think, yeah, what I really appreciate is that, um, yeah, it's like you're, it's like where we're at in history, but also the formulation that you gave, it like compels you to want to think in new ways and to like expand your thinking. And even um, the way you kind of charted this history of civilization is also like a, a history of the state um, is very, I think it reminds me of, you know, The World in Africa by Du Bois in which he also charts basically like Egypt, Upper Lower Egypt, Ethiopia, like all of these, the emergence of these kinds of new states and new civilizations in Africa. Um, and yeah, to see it basically like the through line to the modern, like the modern epoch is really interesting. And yeah, I think just like an initial, in some ways, like 
reaction to what you're saying it also yeah like it definitely made me think a lot about black reconstruction and yeah like Neri and I were talking a little bit as you were speaking of like how would you in some ways like how would you define the American state during the period of reconstruction as both a state in crisis but also in some ways it's like it was a state that like could be set it's like a state that was going through like a phase change in some ways where it's like simultaneously um like you have the federal government like bringing into being something like the um the freedmen's bureau as the manifestation of like an embryonic form of a new type of state while the existing state was in existence aside from basically the um what Du Bois says is like the was like the erasure and the the collapse of the planter class in the South. But overall within the United States itself, like it was, yeah, it wasn't like even like two states coexisting during reconstruction, but it was almost like a state that was like bringing into the people bringing into existence, like a new type of state, but within like a certain framework of constitutionality. And I don't know, it's just very, interesting and very I don't know in some ways like beautiful to like think about how these kinds of historical phenomena developed um and I don't know yeah I have a lot to I guess think about in relation to this but I think the other part of it is in some ways it's like part of what it seems like is going on right now and I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying but like even describing like for the ruling elite, the two ways they could resolve it is either basically like overt fascism or like reform. And in some ways you have different, it's like different elements of the ruling elite are also like pushing for different things. Like someone like Martin Wolf is pushing for the reform as like a resolution while other elements within the ruling elite and maybe the more, in some ways, maybe the more powerful elements of the ruling elite are pushing for probably like the other resolution, which is, yeah, like basically going beyond constitutionality and subverting constitutionality. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, it's a very interesting, it's a very momentous, I think, time to be alive and to be part of these changes. And yeah, I think one of my questions that I'm thinking about is like what, like in this moment when there is a possibility for like, I don't know in some yeah like like the crisis of the state but also the resolution of the crisis like what then becomes of constitutionality and the constitution itself um in such a moment and I don't know because I've always like I guess I'm wondering like is it does it become necessary I think to have like a new constitution or is that like in some ways a more like kind of secondary question to all of this but it seems like even to like what you said at the beginning that the breakthrough of the first American revolution was the establishment of a rule of law and the establishment of a constitution, which constituted the state itself. And which was basically an agreement amongst like a, um, a compact amongst the American people to agree to be ruled by like a constitution itself. And yeah, I'm just curious about like what would happen to, um, what would happen to the constitution even like in this period of crisis and like how would it be impacted by an attempt to re resolve that crisis? Yeah, can I just say one quick thing? 
it's hard to uh, predetermine yeah. the course of all of this will be. Yeah. Just don't know. One thing we have to get clear, we, and this is why I was trying to do this, we got to burst through this foolish, distractive, obscurantist narrative of the ruling class of the United States, that Trump is a criminal and they, the ruling class, are defending democracy. My argument, and I said this to a friend of mine yesterday, oh, Trump, I, I'll never, I'm, I'm gonna vote for Cornell. I said, well, that's good because he's a part of a triad. You vote for Cornell, you are voting for Trump. Let's keep it real. You know, the Democrats got that right. You're not, at least you're not voting for Biden. But here is the thing, you know, I just want to get, get this clear. The people in the ruling class and by the ruling elite or the ruling class, we are talking about not a relationship to money. Jay-Z and Beyonce can be billionaires. They're not a part of the ruling class because they are not a part of the state. To be a part of the ruling class is to be in one or another way connected to the state, to the, author the ultimate authority, the ultimate centers of power, that government, that presidents and congressmen and this and the other can say whatever they want, but they cannot do one thing. They cannot uh, claim to want to limit the capacity of the state and its agencies to rule. And all I want us to be clear on and others that this election is not about the ruling elite defending democracy against a criminal and the hordes of close to 75 million people that follow him. That is not what the election is about. The election is about, as Richard Haas says or suggests, it, this election is about whether or not the American people will undermine the American empire. I, I know I'm talking a little long. Let me just, just another example. With my friend who I was talking with on uh, Chestnut Street yesterday, won't come to free school, don't want to listen, you know it all, you know. <sighs> okay. Mm. My friend. Mm -hmm. But you can't be dumb all your damn life. Come on, man. You have to study. It's not all instinct. Yeah. And these are questions that require study, conversation, and so on. I said to him that this crisis is existential, that it is not Trump alone. He said, well, Trump is not a revolutionary. I said, I never said that anyway. I said, Trump is disrupting the ruling class. But since he's a Garveyite and does not understand class, everything is skin strategy and, and this, that, and the other, he cannot understand the discourse on the state. Mm 
Now, I said to him, Cornell is has more in common and certainly in sentiment is closer to Trump than he is to Biden. What does, what does Cornell say? I want to be president in order to destroy the empire, to destroy US imperialism. Well, Trump didn't, didn't quite say it that way, but the practice of the Trump movement is undermining US empire. What are they talking about? Bringing all these military bases out of the rest of the world, ending the US relationship to NATO. Well, that might not finish the whole job, but it takes us a long way to getting us where we want to be. So Cornell, whether you can admit it or not, I know it will produce cognitive dissonance given the language that you have used about Trump as a neo-fascist thug and all of that with no definition of fascism. How do you know he's the neo-fascist thug and Hillary is not? Uh, I mean, what is the criteria? You don't like the way he looks? You don't like who, who he associates with? This is a big thing. He associates with the Proud Boys, with the Boogaloo Boys, which is a very interesting name for an all-white organization because the Boogaloo is a black dance style. <laughs> so I find very interesting, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, you know, and now they're going to all be locked up. You know, but as frankly as enemies of the state, but the fact that I don't like who you associated with, I don't like that you have empathy for even the most misguided of the white working classes. Trump said, I am building, he doesn't say it this way, but it's apparent, especially in this election, he is building a coalition of the discontented. This, his movement is a movement of rebellion, of resistance, of, I mean, you know, the, the mugshot that they took of him and they tried to humiliate him in that prison where he was booked. That is a prison where inmates die every week from preventable causes. This is probably one of the worst prisons in the whole United States and among the worst in the world. So you bring a former president because you're going to prove or show him who's boss. And then he takes a mugshot and, and already they've raised tens of millions of dollars off of selling the mugshot, uh, that shot of him. And he says in, in it, Never give up. Never give up. Who is the fight against? And this is why we must keep our eyes on the prize. Who is saying what? And who is being criminalized? And who is not being criminalized? You know, you're talking about lying? Lying? What about the lies that got us into the war in Vietnam? What about the lies that got us into the war in Iraq? What about the lies that justify the overturning of the government of Libya? 
I mean, we can go on and on, not to mention the lies that justified the murders of Fred Hampton, Martin Luther King, the Kennedy. These were based upon lies. And Robert Kennedy, and this is why we are right, this is a triad of opposition. Huge figures, each articulate in his own way. You know, it's, it's, it's poetic, as you say, Jerry, it's poetic in the way it's configured because they represent different aspects of the American people. Cornell is polling four to five percent without any money, without any political experience, a learning on the job candidate, already five percent. You know what I'm saying? Uh, actual polls show Trump beating Biden by significant numbers, especially in the swing states. And Robert Kennedy uh, will emerge as we go forward as a more powerful figure. And what is he saying? Robert Kennedy is running against the deep state. He is running against the state. Who was Cornell running against? The state. That's why you don't hear in this election a lot of discussion of policies. And uh, if I'm elected, I will uh, pass a bill to bring all chip production back to the United States and I will fight him. You know, all of that nickel and dime espionage and you're not going to do anything and don't intend to do anything. Well, that discussion ain't even on the table. The discussion on the table is, in essence, the crisis of the state. So now, my last point. All these people, abolitionists, we want to abolish the police, we want to abolish uh, the prison system, uh, and we want to reconstruct something new. Well, you went to the prisons and the police before you got to the real question of the state. Mm -hmm. The police are only an aspect, minor albeit, of the state. The question is the state. And that is why, unless you are talking about the state and its lack of democracy, it's shutting down the capacity of the people to express themselves, to stand up, etc. Unless you're talking about that, uh, all your talk about abolishing the police is nonsense. It's child's play. Uh, it is to distract from the fundamental crisis. And if you're not talking about the fundamental crisis, you need to shut up. No, just a small question on what you said about the deep state. Yes. Um, so would you rather the word just say fascism or authoritarianism, or is there? Well, yeah, that, that's a good question. First of all, you know, even though I might lapse into using the word deep state because it's always used, I'm talking about the state. I don't like the term deep state because it it's more like a conspiracy theory. Uh, certain of the 
arms of the state are well known. I mean, for example, the CIA, the FBI, national intelligence, the military, the corporations, and so on connected to the military. Of course, prisons are part of this, but that is not the, that is not the major question. The question is of the state, mm -hmm. uh, as I've defined it. Mm -hmm. um, what was the other part of your question, sir? Would you rather use the word fascism? Authority, yes. And that's another thing. Would I prefer to use the word fascism or authoritarianism or oligarchy or uh, kleptocracy? You know, all of those words. Um, I would... Um, I kind of shy away from using the word Nazism or fascism to define what, what the U.S. state has evolved into. First of all, uh, the fascist state in Italy and Germany were upon a, built upon a much smaller uh, uh, group or, or, or political economy. They were not talking about what we are what we have here. That is a super state, a hegemonic state, a state of an empire. You see what I'm saying? Uh, Hitler probably imagined this, but never came anywhere close to achieving it. Uh, is the U.S. state anti-democratic? That is anti-people of the United States. Yes, it is. It is more anti-democratic than ever before. It does not even wish to claim democracy. It can't claim democracy. The best that it can do is through pop propaganda to obscure who it is and what it is doing. For example, when the New York Times, the so-called liberal paper of record, or the Washington Post, all of these are supposed to represent uh, a freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, and all of that type of thing. Well, they're nothing of the sort. They are um, uh, the opposite. They are defending the taking away of the rights of the people that, and apologizing for it. And and it doesn't take rocket science. And everybody, the masses of people are seeing it. In fact, this election, I don't know that there's ever been a country, an election in this country where so many tens of millions of people are actively involved in thinking through these issues. You, you see what I'm saying? People are approaching 2024, at least at least 70 million of them, with the expectation that we will bring down the ruling elite. That's what they're going into this with. There are hardly any from the masses, especially the working class, which has totally abandoned the Democratic Party. But there are hardly any people in the working class who will defend Biden, who is a representative and defender of the state and its attack upon the people. So, oh, go ahead. Wait, what were you going to finish with? No, 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 I wasn't. 
No, I was just a third follow-up question is that, so you would say that the state that America is um, has been evolving over the past like 300 years? Or has, yes, yes it and has. has been in struggle between like the state and the people? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, that's, I didn't put it that, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is another moment in that. Okay. And uh, I think there's no other way to look at this election but as a contest, a struggle between the people and the state, which, according to radical and Leninist theory, the highest expression of the class struggle is not a strike or an economic action, or even a civic action on the part of working people. Oh. The highest expression of the class struggle is the political struggle. And the highest expression of the political struggle is the struggle against the state to transform the state from a state of a small elite to the state of the people, the state of democracy. Uh, this conversation uh, has me uh, thinking about the uh, ultra left in America and how in America, because of the anti-Sovietism as Henry Winston writes, uh, anything regarding the state or th thinking about the state that could be an instrument of the people is uh, forbidden basically. And um, you know what, what Jeremiah said earlier about uh, postmodernism and what it's, uh, what it's done to our thinking, uh, you know, postmodernism uh, is, is uh, you know, in conflict uh, with the enlightenment, the European enlightenment. And uh, the best of what the European enlightenment gave us was um, you know, in an ideal world, a nation state uh, where uh, tribe and kingdoms were abolished in favor of uh, nation states with constitutions that uh, provided uh, universal suffrage to citizens. And, um, and, and postmodernism or, or posthumanism, you could consider it, uh, you know, posthumanism and negation of humanism. Um, I was talking to Alice about, you know, my thoughts on uh, the Prophet Muhammad. When the Prophet Muhammad entered Mecca and retook it, he smashed all the idols. Mm. And there's lots of uh, symbolism in that. Mm. Uh, the symbolism I was trying to explain to Alice was the economic symbolism. Mm. In, in olden times, each god represented a city. You know, Athens represented Athena. Uh, or the, you know, the pharaohs worshiped the three Egyptian gods. The gods were not the sovereigns of the uh, city-state, but they were uh, the spiritual representation, you know, the Trojan War. Apollo uh, turns his back on, on Troy, uh, and that's why Troy falls. And um, um, the Prophet Muhammad, when he enters the uh, Kaaba, he smashes the idols because all the tribes are expected to, or all the people are expected to pay tribute 
uh, to the Quraysh. The Quraysh have all the idols, the physical representations of the gods of all the tribes. And what the Prophet is doing is he's abolishing tribe. And, you know, of course, Islam didn't come and remove tribe from the Arabs. You can still be proud of your tribe and your family. Uh, you know, a tribal life is still important in the Middle East. But what it's saying, what it, what it, what uh, Islam was trying to do was unite people in a, in a higher form to accomplish great things, okay. to create, create the Islamic empire. Um, and, you know, uh, that was a long time ago. And uh, we've, uh, you know, the nation state uh, is not uh, accomplishing its role of being a tool for the people. Uh, and they're also all the, it's become, uh, you know, a nation state complex. So, you know, there's the NGO industrial complex. There's the military industrial complex, which is uh, a parasite of the state. And, um, you know, Ray McGovern, um, the uh, journalist, uh, he he has something called Mini Minimat Mickey Mat. Uh, to ex it's an acronym to describe all the uh, add-ons to the state uh, that have been added. Um, and I think that what we're discussing in uh, right now is this idea of uh, reclaiming the state as a tool for the people. You know, it's not a, it's not a bad thing. Uh, in fact, it's actually the goal of the uh, enlightenment was to bring, you know, universal suffrage, to bring all humans to have uh, God-given rights uh, and equality to overcome tribe, caste, class, um, ethnicity. Uh, only the nation state can do that. And we have to, we're discussing, you know, the purpose of the nation state. And, um, of what post what postmodernism has done as as a ideological tool of uh, the bourgeois in the West today is to obfuscate the Enlightenment or the you know the highest crowning achievement of the Enlightenment, which was humanism. Mm. And you know that's why I oppose uh, posthumanism so strongly. And anybody who comes in uh, talking nonsense about how. Foucault said this about power. Uh, you, you have to be very uh, skeptical, uh, you know, almost from the get go. I have uh, I have a question uh, to Doc. To, uh, well, actually, first I'll say, uh, man, that was beautiful, man. I feel connected with the pharaohs man we're carrying the torch of civilization let's go <laughs> but uh second uh my question uh i want to understand the difference between uh the state and the government uh that you mentioned and like uh with, with the idea of uh making sense of what donald trump is doing and what we can make of it because I think when he got in, I wasn't, you know, I, 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 you know, disclaimer, I was against Trump, you know, I was young and naive, uh, thought it was the end of the world. Uh, I, my understanding is when he came in, he was like, oh, you know, we're gonna, he, he said he's gonna drain the swamp, but I, it, it seemed to me like a reform of the government in some kind of way. And then I think once he was in power and he, you know, he realized what, what, what he was dealing with, I think it became very clear uh, to him and now to the American people uh that what was required is much more than what he had intended to do uh 
and uh, so I'm I'm trying to get a better sense of uh, what that actually is, in so that we can get a sense of what's possible uh, for the American people. Uh, how can how can we uh, make something of this moment to have more power in the hands of the American people? How can we raise the the possibility the the capacity of the people to uh, make the most of this moment uh, and uh, yeah, make make the basis of uh, our society, uh, you know, the people of the society. Uh, it seems like as much as Donald Trump is is capable, <clears throat> I don't. It, it it's it seems different than something like what my understanding of uh, communism is or socialism in that you're removing the bourgeoisie. Uh, as the ruling elite, which sounds pretty cool to me, uh, the you know the capitalist class, uh, and so yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure what uh, he's doing uh, concretely yet. I'm sure he has to you know he has to be careful about what he's saying because they're coming for him. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, yeah, I have these questions. If I could just say very quickly, you know, we have to separate subjective and objective uh, patterns. Subjectively, we're talking about the intentions, the mindset, the consciousness of important actors and players on this chessboard. And of course, it's often very difficult to fully grasp what Trump's real or total program is what his intentions are what his ideology is you know um because so often he is playing to his audience so when he attacks communism fascism and socialism as the same thing uh a person like myself could say well he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's playing to an audience who sees uh has this a Hollywood uh, understanding of communism as anti-democratic and and the same as fascism, you know? So Trump coming up in the Cold War, being a businessman, never really studying any of this, I don't think, uh, gets, you know, he's he's playing to an audience, he's performing and he is a great performer, but uh, conceptually and intellectually, uh, he's intentionally or unintentionally making huge mistakes. But that's the subjective side. Also on the subjective side is that here we have, and this we are fortunate, a man with the will and courage to push forward against the ruling elite. This, as King said, this is a vocation of agony. It is a vocation of agony where you know, and everybody that follows these things know, that if they can't stop you legally, they will stop you through assassination. We've been through that. We know what that looks like. We know how you set up a narrative and demonize somebody, and then uh, their assassination is seen as 
just, you know, it didn't mean anything because they were evil anyway. The problem is that never has anyone in American history had the constituency of Donald Trump. This is new. And that means that whether you're an evangelical Christian or black Baptist in the poor side or Pentecostals on the poor side of Atlanta, you identify more with him than with the ruling elites. A man with the courage who is not afraid and people who are looking for those qualities as leaders, and he's right about this, of a political movement. And that's what this is. This is not Republican or Democrats because about the majority of the Republican elites are against him, including in Georgia, uh, where they're letting this charade go forward. Uh, but that's the subjective sign. But objectively, that is beyond Trump, beyond any individual, is the deep dissatisfaction of the American people. We have never seen it before. Nothing close to this. The civil rights movement could not build upon this anger and disenchantment because civil rights for black people couldn't trigger that kind of reaction. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, most people felt, most the majority, most white people felt indifferent to the thing, you know, to this. As long as the American dream, i.e., upward mobility, doing better now than yesterday and all of that was still in place. That's why King had to make uh, strong moral arguments. Uh, however, the American dream has evaporated for the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans live in and near poverty. We know that well in Philadelphia. You know, uh, Kensington, is not an aberration, it is the future. And this is what is so dangerous. It is the future. Deindustrialization is not an aberration. It is the past and the future. Industry will not come back under the current regime. Uh, peace uh, is uh, something that the people have to fight for. So objectively, Trump, the response to Trump is the response of the American people to a movement that they want, that they look forward to, an opposition movement, a triad of opposition where Trump is the key motivator, the key figure. Um, so there are two things here. and everything, you know, you know, I'm not going to follow this path of these uh, weak liberals and, and social Democrats. Well, what about that? Well, he said this or, you know, all this back and forth. I, I'm not into all of that. I, as I said to my friend yesterday, um, 
if you are revolutionary, we're not in this uh, to look only at what we like or who we like or what we don't like. We have to look scientifically at the objective processes going on. And what is happening today in the United States, frankly, has never happened in the United States has never happened in the United States. You can read Howard Zinn's History of the of People's History of the United States. You can read uh, 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 Foner's Reconstruct. You could, you know, any of this. The fact of the matter is, no one predicted it or could have predicted it. But it's now upon us, and. The crisis is the crisis of the state. And Donald Trump is the symbol of the forces of opposition and disenchantment. The more he is attacked, the greater the disenchantment with the ruling elite becomes. This tells you something about the objective conditions and, and really about what we talk about all the time in free school the capacity of the American people, one, to understand the moment and to act to resolve the crisis on their terms. This is new. And this is why I think, as you said, Eddie, that um, the left is useless. Uh, useless to the people, but useful idiots for the ruling elite. Their ideas, their narratives, their practice parallels and is more like the ruling class than like the people. The people are in open rebellion, open contestation, and daring the ruling class to assassinate Trump. They're daring them. You do this, the consequences are more than you are you, you have bargained for. And when you reach that type of, of standoff, you say, and that's where we are. You kill our leader, we can't say what the consequences would be. We don't think you want to do that. And Let's have no mistake about it. Trump is the most important political leader that this country has seen, maybe since Lincoln, maybe greater than Lincoln. He has been forced into greatness by the situation and by the people. And his only defense of his life and of his politics are the people. And as things look right now, he is going to win the 2024 election from jail or not in jail. And if they lock him up, that might just enhance his capacity to become the next president. Then what does the ruling elite do? Because the government or the head of government that is the president is no longer in line with the institutions of the state and has said openly 
that he will defund the FBI. You know what he said? I will defund parts of the state and then separate them and have, first of all, defund a lot of it and then have certain parts dismantled and uh, reconfigured in different parts of the country. Where all of this leads, we do not know. But one thing is for certain, the people are making history. You're muted, Jahan. Uh, am I audible? Yeah, I wanted to ask a question uh, following up uh, to what Serafina and maybe Eddie also were saying. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm understanding this point of it's very important to understand the the modern American state, or I think you said the liberal uh, American state through its you know a genealogy and the various political events that have happened uh, in the history of the U.S. Um, and so, and one thing that I picked up on was I think you identified the that you know okay with the enlightenment there's the achievement and with the american revolution there's the achievement of rule by law rather than rule by a individual a sovereign um and then you have a whole other set of contradictions which you hinted at obviously slavery color line etc and then the develop after reconstruction and the overturning of reconstruction the development of the us into an empire and imperialism you know as defined by lenin and so i think you are indicating that the rule of rule of law is coming into conflict at times in history with uh imperialism and you know we could identify the uh jfk assassination and the other assassinations of the 60s as an example of that in which a lawfully elected president uh was eliminated by forces of the state um and so i wanted to ask you if you could also well so uh, you're, it's interesting to me that you're saying deep state is, you know, something that is not as useful as just saying state. So what I wanted to ask was my understanding of deep state and why I thought there may have been some use for it is when it comes to the concept of a state within a state, you know, or I guess you could put it another way. I don't know if it's just semantics, but you could talk about the elected government and the deep state, or maybe it's better just say elected government and the permanent state or so on, because, you know, state is used in so many ways by people. But when you add deep state or permanent state, it indicates that it is something that's beyond the uh, legal democratic uh, processes that have been established in the Constitution. And uh, similarly, you know, the whole thing we saw with Trump, Russia Gate, and uh, and what's happening now as well, the attempt to disqualify him again is uh, elected leader, someone who by rule of law was president and should be president again, coming into conflict with you know, either the deep state, permanent state, or just the state. And similarly, uh, you know, when you look at the, the the history of institutions like the FBI or the Pentagon, I know that uh, you had shared an interview by this guy, his last name was Perry, who was a black FBI informant in the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army. And he basically laid out through his firsthand experience that the FBI is essentially a state within a state. One revelation that I didn't know about, and he, he said this in 1980, 
uh, that the FBI has its official budget, which is obviously quite massive, allocated to it. But then it has controlling interests in various businesses. And he said in 1980 that if you assume if the president and the Congress just cut off the FBI's budget, official budget, it would be able to survive for five to six years just on the money that it, it, it gains through uh, uh, its various business interests. And he also said that the FBI is basically prepared if there's ever a takeover of the government by quote unquote unpatriotic forces, meaning communists, people from the black liberation movement, the FBI would be prepared to take action. And that's also why it has the independent uh, means of funding. And so all of that is basically in violation of uh, rule of law. In fact, I, so I heard a, a talk by someone recently, and uh, in fact, it was someone from the Nation of Islam. And they said that according, if you read the U.S. Constitution carefully, the highest uh, law enforcement official it discusses is the county sheriff. There's no legal really even basis for there to be an FBI or a federal police department or so. It's all in violation of the, you know, the founding principles of the American Revolution. So all of that is to say, uh, so how, how would you see that in relation to this, uh, you know, obviously this history? How does it help us understand this, this distinction between, okay, deep state as a concept of a state within a state versus what I think you're, the terms you're proposing uh, in your presentation today of just talking about the state in relationship to the government and, and other factors, if, if I'm making sense. You make all the sense in the world. And I have to say that I don't have answers theoretically or empirically to a lot of the points that you make. Uh, is there a state within a state? Uh, if, you take, if you take Lenin's theory, the state is always a single integral whole. Whether that is empirically the case always, well, that's another question. Um, the um, uh, And I agree with you about the use of the concept in popular discourse, the deep state. Uh, but what is it? Is the deep state the CIA, FBI, national intelligence? Uh, is the is the deep state the permanent so-called permanent government of the various departments like the defense department like the justice department etc um i you know empirically i don't have an answer uh obviously there are contradictions within the state there are political differences of the various forces within the state uh most of that goes uh, without, uh, you don't hear about it, you don't see it. Uh, but I would, I would say, yeah, there have to be, especially in a time of crisis. And that, that's, in a sense, what, what makes sense of Martin Wolf, you know, the liberal social Democrat, saying reform and fundamental reform is necessary if the state, the bourgeois state, is to be preserved. Um, so indeed, there are ideological trends within the state uh, about how to resolve the existential crisis of the state. Uh, but I, I would just say this, that this crisis is not a crisis of only a part of the state. It is a crisis of the state itself. And I arrive at that um, because the state 
under bourgeois democracy cannot function unless there is a wide consensus that the authority of the state, the ultimate centers of power and authority operate in the interests of democracy. What we see, and this, I don't, whatever polling data you look at, everybody is saying the nation is moving in the right, in the wrong direction. Well, let's unpack that, which means that the nation is moving against the people in economic and political and foreign policy matters, and that the people do not matter to the ruling elite. That's what people are saying. Therefore, it is a judgment upon the state itself. Have you seen an elite uh, of any political persuasion that's prepared to subject him or herself to a lecture and a debate where masses of ordinary people show up? They don't want to go among the people because they know they are so despised by the people. And it's not just the government. Part of the anger at Joe Biden is people's perception that he is being used by forces that were unelected. And they're not wrong. <laughs> that the guy is feeble, the guy is early stages, and on and on and on. So who is the government? Has the government uh, conceded authority to the state? Has the state become the government? Which means then that we don't have a government, that the country is ungoverned mm -hmm. and ungovernable, mm -hmm. large parts of it ungoverned and ungovernable by the ruling elite and the government. So it's almost like we're looking at the government of Biden being pushed aside and the mechanisms of the state taking over the government. Mm. Um. This, this is unprecedented. Very seldom in modern bourgeois democracies has anything close to this ever happened. You know, I talked to Purba and Shambhata and Shantanu about India. People in India can't imagine this. They think government governs and you elect a government to govern. They cannot imagine that the elected government conceded to the state and the state is now governing. And that is in some ways a classic definition of dictatorship by which we mean law no longer matters. The law is what the hegemon, the dictator, the, the cabal that runs things, the law is what they say and no one dared not challenge it. Be she or he on the Supreme Court, the federal bench, uh, or, or a local DA. You do what you are told. 
the Democratic Party has ceased to be the party of working people and black people. It is the party of the state. I, I, that's, I, I don't know, I'm a little emotional about that. But yeah, that, that's, what, that's the way I would put it, uh, Joe. Well, you know, uh, just briefly uh, uh, bring in the third world, uh, the relationship of all this to the third world and to neocolonialism. If you, uh, from what I've understood by looking into the, the history of the term deep state, uh, that it was first really used, I think, by academics or scholars to describe Turkey post, you know, with the modern Republic of Turkey, because uh, in a sense, when it made an alliance with the United States and with NATO, a kind of basically a deep state was constructed of military and intelligence agencies and so on, who were basically, you know, trained by uh, uh, the CIA and British intelligence and so on. And they were aimed at stopping. I mean, they, they would initially in the early years of Turkey have these democratic uh, bourgeois democratic processes. But the whole point was that if they ever got out of hand, if you ever had a government that was moving away from uh, the interests of uh, NATO and so on, that the deep state would be able to step in and conduct coup d'etat and so on. And which has happened, I think, three or so times in the history of, of uh, modern Turkey. And similarly, in countries like Pakistan and elsewhere in the third world, that has been uh, uh, used. And uh, but, you know, the irony and perhaps maybe why the term deep state is also not the most accurate is that you can't really contrast it with American democracy because American democracy has produced these structures all over uh, the third world. And some people may have seen this, but like the joke was for many years was like, oh, why is there never a coup d'etat in Washington, D.C.? Because there's no American embassy in Washington, D.C., because then inevitably whenever be coup d'etats in the third world against democratic governments. There'd be a, a, a diplomatic party or some kind of green light uh, to the coup plotters from the American embassy. Uh, but now it seems like we are experiencing, uh, you know, that coup d'etat. It's not about having embassies. It's, we have something even stronger in Washington, D.C. We have the Pentagon, the FBI, the CIA. And uh, yeah, so in a lot of ways, what we're seeing mirrors what we've seen in many third world countries with the these, you know, uh, forces uh, in coordination with Washington, taking control of judiciaries and parliaments and media and so on, and trying to disqualify and lock up uh, various uh, opposition political figures. And uh, no, all these processes are happening in the heart of the U. And the American people, in a lot of the majority at least of the American people, now are getting a taste of this and experiencing it firsthand, creating this kind of uh, antagonistic. Or, or, you know, making a contradiction into basically an antagonistic contradiction between the people uh, and the state. Yeah, I was also going to say, because a lot of this, first of all, it was so clarifying, but also made me think about India, like Doc was also saying, because I guess the Indian freedom struggle led to the establish of a state that was anti-imperialist and it had a democratic form of government but it was essentially an anti-imperialist state and it had a social contract with the people that still is valid and you know governments change over time but that essential character of the state remains and you can see that sort of in the response India has had toward, to this crisis in Ukraine and you know vis-a-vis -vis Russia and um, sort of diplomatic relations and so on. But I was, I, what was also clarifying 
through this entire discussion is when we say the triad of opposition, a question is opposition to what and who? I mean, it's not really an opposition to Joe Biden or the Democrats per se, but in essence, it's an opposition to a state that has been captured by neocons and warmongers, like Doc was saying, of which Joe Biden and the Democrats and even some of the Republican elites are a part of. But it also includes liberal media like the New York Times and Washington Post and so on and so forth. So it that that entire superstructure is what this opposition or triad of opposition is against. But I was also to come back to this idea, I was thinking of the idea of a social contract a lot more and also trying to understand basically what was the role of the civil rights movement vis-a-vis -vis the American state. And please correct me if I'm wrong. I think the way I understand it so far, and this could be limited in analysis, is that it was even the, the second revolution, civil war and reconstruction, but then the third revolution, civil rights movement was you know, a, demo, a struggle to uh, renew and deepen the social contract that the state has to the people, fighting against historical odds and historical constitution of the state as it existed at that point. But after that, the suppression of the Black Freedom Movement and the trivialization and attack on its leaders really led that led to a breakdown of this social contract which gives you i guess kensington and it gives you this intense deindustrialization and poverty but in where was i going with that um so i guess the struggle now is to sort of renew or even established fresh a social contract because a state that does not honor its social social contract with the people is by definition a hostile state against the people. And I also find this, the formulation in terms of fascism very ironic because on one hand where people want to call Trump and his followers a fascist, if this triad of opposition were to succeed, it would actually be the thing that stops the state from taking a fascist turn uh, because they've already started talking about uh, undoing elections and free speech, you know, to sort of fit into the state's definition of democracy yeah. and so on. So that's very ironic. <laughs> I just want to add that. Yeah, I also wanted to sort of um, build on what Purva was saying, like, you know, because like this whole conversation is very, uh, it seems very scientific because at the same time, you know, we're talking about liberal democracy and fascism sort of in the same framework. We're talking about like in you know, a fascism as a continuation, like you said, Doc, as a continuation of, of bourgeois democracy at a time of crisis. And like, you know, this thing that is started with the distinction between the, like, you know, the pre-French or American Revolution state, which was like sort of centered around the sovereign as opposed to the later state, which is centered around the law. And, you know, I'm seeing as fascism as like in a fascism uh, in terms of the 1940s and so on uh, fascism being a breach of this concept and you know a breach of of the upholding of law and therefore the creation of the institution of you know dictator and so on and so forth and this is the way uh we can understand fascism of the 40s but this in the Bura was saying i was also thinking like is there a need for a new definition of fascism today because 
like you know the like the way fascism is talked about in uh like in um, in popular discourse and you know reinforced by um you know the ruling elite media and so on it's going back to uh like you know it's 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 going back 80 years like in in the past and trying to you know uh, sort of frame individuals as fascists and so on and so forth while at the same time there is a fascist element in the ruling class and you know like that is never the like that like in that element that fascist element is never the one talked about or even like you know, admitted and this is because like you know it's not centered around an individual like we are saying it it is centered around like you know, this idea of of a part of the state or the whole state like either the deep state or you know the state as a whole which is opposed to the people and how do we understand fascism today then because i am like the reason i'm thinking about this is because uh like you know this language of fascism the ruling class language of fascism is used to um i mean is used to what's the word like you know discredit um nations all over the world because you are talking about like you know, any kind of government any state that does not follow the us imperial policy is a fascist state and then you invent reason then you invent different reasons to explain to justify that like you know you can call in india or china or russia and so on and so forth authoritarian and so on but that's why i'm thinking how do we define fascism that's relevant to today's time which is not centered around an individual before we uh it over I, I just wanted to tell everyone my my favorite quote about uh fascism which is from upton sinclair uh and upton sinclair says uh when fascism comes to america it'll be uh draped in an american flag and carrying a cross you know uh you know maybe upton sinclair didn't, didn't live, live long enough to see uh postmodernism, but um you know what he's trying to get at is that the aesthetic of fascism will will match uh you know will not match you know what it's actually uh what its uh essence is or um to clarify to clarify that you know uh fascism will present itself as everything but fascism just as the nazis presented themselves as socialists yeah here here is the thing just uh uh, to Sambarta and to something Purba. Oh, yeah. In American discourse, and by liberal, we don't mean policy liberal. By liberal, we mean uh, John Locke, Edmund Burke, John Stuart Mill. That's the liberal state is the same as the bourgeois state. It can be conservative or, quote, liberal, but it is the liberal state is the bourgeois state. The social contract, and you hear them saying this all the time, the social contract is the constitution. That the state that was constituted out of the American Revolution guarantees democracy and hence opportunity to the American people. The theory is, and the discourse is, that democracy is not only the best form of government, but the best form of society for every individual. You see what I'm saying? Uh, the other thing is that, um, uh, so that's the social contract. 
It's not a list of things that are like healthcare, education. No, it's democracy and quote, freedom of the individual. And that's the way the American discourse goes. That is what is in question now. Is the state protecting democracy or is the state attacking democracy? Democracy meaning rule of the people, okay? The, the other thing, just to uh, Shambarta's point, see, I don't feel the concept of fascism or who was a fascist or the fascist or this, that, and the other is of any value or use these days. I think we are in the throes of a titanic battle politically, the outcome of which is not determinable at this stage. It is a titanic battle. It is huge. Titanic meaning tens of millions of people are drawn into this struggle. And the sides are more or less decided by social economic class. The poorer you are, the more you will tend to be on the opposite side of the state. The less educated you are, in other words, if you don't have college degrees or advanced degrees or professional degrees, you will tend to be on the opposite side of the state. Mm -hmm. Whereas the more educated, the more wealth you have, you will side with the state as democratic. Mm -hmm. Two vastly different worldviews, yeah. totally irreconcilable. Tens of millions of Americans are saying the state itself is undemocratic. And they don't hear and don't want to hear any apologies for this. And they will say in their way, look what you're doing to Trump. Every time they indict him, the people, they're not using the language I'm using, but in objective terms are saying, if you are so democratic, why are you criminalizing the major opponent of Joe Biden in the 2024 election? Mm -hmm. It is because you want to subvert democracy. It's because you don't want we, the people, to have rights. This is the, the tectonic, there's a shift yeah. going on mm -hmm. at the deepest level of social political life in this country. You cannot overstate it. A fundamental shift is in process. How it will go, whether it will be ultimately successful, whether or not the forces of the state can regain the upper hand over the people, whether or not the people have the capacity to unite and decide the future of the country and of democracy, whether or not a fourth American revolution 
which is, let's get it clear, a process and not a act, whether a new process of democratization of a new people's democracy is in the process of being realized. The question most American people will not call for a new constitution. They will call for the constitution we have being lived up to. Mm -hmm. That's what Martin Luther King said. He said, do in practice what you wrote on paper. I can hear, you know, I just listen and see people, you know, people don't talk like us, but they talk. And if you understand how to understand people, you can hear just what we're saying. The other huge thing is this idea, we ain't gonna study war no more. We don't want war with Russia. We don't want war with China. You can't continue to demonize not just Trump, but leaders of every country. Everybody that doesn't agree with the US ruling elite is an authoritarian dictator, thug, and all that type of thing. Well, Trump doesn't speak badly about them. He says they're brilliant people. They're capable people. I disagree with them, he would say, but they're not fools. He said that the fools are in the Western capitals and in the United States. You know, the intelligent people are in China, North Korea, Russia, and places like that. Quite interesting. But the American people do not buy the line that Trump is undermining democracy. That is what is key. They haven't bought that. And the ruling elite cannot convince them of that. This is huge. Maybe we got some comments that we can read. Yeah, we do have comments. Okay, so let's see. Um, Future Homestead, yeah, had said, I'm glad to be alive to see this amazing moment in history. Um, if this is the kind of thing they're considering to stop Trump, imagine if someone like Cornell West or even Bernie were very popular in the polls. Um, but I think the thing is, is that they're not that as popular in the polls as Trump. Therefore, like the ruling class doesn't see the need to attack them the way that they are attract attacking Trump. And I think that's, I actually think that's really important because when we're talking about like the state, the government and the people, and at this point, the government, which is supposed to represent the people and at least some form of democracy has collapsed into the state. Then the real question is like, if who is the state and if the state is against the people, then I feel like Trump as the receiver of all of those attacks by the state does mean something very deep. Um, Christopher Romero says that was amazing. And then Danny had commented there is not a state in the Marx or Lenin sense at the time of the American Revolution. But I think that's also what you were saying, Doc, which is that the American Revolution was what created a new state under law and under constitution, which is, I think, yeah, like one, I guess, one other very interesting contribution of what the American Revolution actually achieved. Um, Future Homestead says, yes, Doc, clapping emoji, more clapping emojis. And then um, Christopher Romero commented, 
I wonder what the relation is between what DACA said and the term civilization state. Does this show a new phase for states under the Afro-Asiatic reconfiguration or reconstitution? And initially he had said that China and Russia are calling themselves civilization states, but then he corrects himself and says that American political scientists are the one were like the originators of the term civilization state applying it to China and Russia. And that as far as he knows, it hasn't actually been claimed by China or Russia. And I don't know, I feel like that's really interesting too, but I kind of think that the way, my understanding of the way that you used civilization is more in a general, almost like epochal term, as opposed to like uh, the civilization of China or like the civilization of Russia and the state. Um, and it's still like, I think it's still interesting, but I feel like what you were saying about like the liberal, yeah, liberalism and the social contract and the state of nature and that state, and then the crisis, which is a modern crisis is pointing to basically like almost a new form of civilization, which is needed, which is, I think is what also what you were talking about with people's democracy, where it's like, can there, yeah, like, can there actually be a new face for states like under the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution, which is what Christopher Romero is saying, but in a form of people's democracy. And I actually think that that's really remarkable because when you were talking about rationalism, you were saying that part of the assumption is that because all men are rational, like all men have the capacity to do, like that is the reason why there's the possibility for democracy or for governance. Yes. But it's pushing that to a new stage where I feel like yes. it doesn't have to be purely formalized through the law or just the constitution. Although like at the same time, practically, it's more that you just want the constitution to actually do what it's supposed to do. But I feel like the, the in like the really big picture form, it's almost like it, maybe it does not even have to be law in that sense. Um, I right. think one thing, Nuri, about that, yeah, this concept, civilization state, I think is useful, mm. is very useful, and it's maybe more specific than many of the authors. I know um, the author of the book, When China Rules the World, uh, what's his name? Martin uh, Jacques. Yeah, Martin Jacques. He, uh, he uses the civilization state concept to define the Chinese state. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, and this is an important feature of state theory, I think now, all states are civilization states, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and so it, a lot depends on what stage of civilization one is at. I think the North Korean state is a civilization state, um, and proudly so. Um, I don't know that the, and you're right, the, uh, Romero's right, the Chinese have not claimed it, nor have the Russians. But what some people in using civiliz civilization state are trying to get at is that these are states not based upon liberal bourgeois assumptions. Yeah about the state. So the Chinese state would be the state with Chinese civilization characteristics. Chinese socialism would be socialism with Chinese mm -hmm. civilization uh, characteristics. And in 
modern theorizing, which is highly uh, secular, the ideas of civilization are generally not discussed yeah. uh, as a part of either the, the crisis or the overcoming of the crisis. Du Bois was highly civilizational mm -hmm. in his understanding of the American people, as was Baldwin. Mm -hmm. uh, and this idea of I'm a citizen of a nation that does not yet exist. But the question is, is there, without the full emergence of the nation, yeah. is there still a civilization that is being worked on? That's why King is important. Yeah. He advances civilization in, in anticipation of a new state that is based upon a new civilization. Yeah. Yeah, because I think part of the way that I think civilization state is normally used is as a departure from the nation state. But I think the thing is, is that I think this frame, like this world framework of like nation states interacting with each other is very firmly like entrenched in the Western liberal form. And the civilization state in that sense marks something new, I think for like the world. And then it also points to, yeah. Cause I think basically the pointing is like to something beyond just Western civilization um, or like Western as in like the liberal Western, like bourgeois democracy and fascism, but actually like people's democracy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go back to comments. Okay, Jamila said, if Trump wins the election from jail, then we begin to look like other countries <clears throat> that are in the throes of revolution. And then she says, also good morning and thank you for the sustained and valuable voice of the Saturday Free School. And then Blaze has a comment. He says, I just finished Lenin's State and Revolution. And as you said during the beginning, I think a synthesis of Du Bois and Lenin applied to the crisis of the American state today would be powerful. And then he has two long Lenin quotes. So I think I'm just going to read one. Um, and it's to develop democracy to the utmost, to find the forms for this development, to test them by practice and so forth. All of this is a component task of the struggle for the social revolution. Taken separately, no kind of democracy will bring socialism, but in actual life, democracy will never be taken separately, but together with other things. Um, like this is the dialectics of living history. <clears throat> and then he says, Lenin's description of the distortion of Marx and Marx's ideas by the state is also like what has happened to Du Bois today and why it's important to study and reclaim Du Bois's democratic revolutionary democratic essence for our time. Mm. And then Layat says, the recognition that the government has effectively surrendered itself to the state is so clarifying. It gets to why our rulers cannot seem to think through what is objectively happening at this moment. Once you're not responsible for translating a popular will, and definitely once you learn to despise the people, then the rationalizations for doing further violence to the rule of law writes itself. Yeah, which I think is really cool. And then BK has a comment. He says, or they say, there's an uncomfortable irony. Um, consider that the tsunami of Trump support and the exposure of the ill intentions of the liberal left may actually serve to fuel the goals of the global elite ruling class. 
And I think that this comment probably comes from skepticism about what Trump will ultimately bring about. And I feel like we are not saying that, you know, like Trump is the person who will go all the way. I feel like you have said many times, like even throughout this conversation today, that we're in the throes of a crisis so deep and so profound that actually nobody can say what the outcome ultimately will be. But I think part of this, like, I think when, I think one, okay, one other thought that I've had throughout this conversation is that I think one of the tactics of even the state or something that does not serve the people is like, yeah, this distinction between deep state, which can be like easily subverted into like, oh, like you're a conspiracy theorist. And then like versus the state is that I feel like there are so many terms around the state that nobody is actually really able to say like, oh, this is what the state is. This is what it does like very clearly. So you have like nation state or like, oh, just the state itself is bad, but like you don't know why it's bad or like what's bad about it. And I feel like all of it is trying to obscure like something very serious, like what the state actually means. And I think I found myself kind of at a loss throughout this conversation because I was like, there's a lot I don't know about the state. But what I feel is that it's important to actually try to study it and to like actually observe it and to say like, oh, this is what the action is or like philosophically. And I feel like that's also why you were laying it out today. And I think part of it too is that when you get to like deep state and then the term like ruling class, and then you get to like elites, corruption of elites, and then like this global thing, I think a lot of it is like people feel like that's right. Like I think that it speaks to something true, which is that you know that there's something going on and you know that there are people who are responsible for it. But I think it's not a precise enough term to actually like speak to the movements that are happening or like who is responsible or what is responsible. Yeah. So. Can, I, can I just quickly, uh, I think so basically my understanding at least in the course of this conversation is that there, if we're talking about a broader revolutionary process, within that process, there are stages to it. And it's almost like we're in like the Trump stage of the revolutionary process, but it's like by going through that and the achievement of the tasks of a certain stage of a process, it is that which brings you to then new possibilities, but also new contradictions. But ultimately it's like, you need to go through that stage in order to reach the conditions for the achievement of the next stage of a revolutionary process. And so it's like, yeah, basically right now, like the Trump stage, yeah. like whether you call it the Trump stage, the tried of opposition stage, the 2024 election, it is essentially a mat, like the task of a mass movement to substantially weaken the state and substantially weaken the ruling elite into it. And basically, yeah, like that, whatever, however it may manifest. And it actually reminds me of, I found this speech that Harry Belafonte gave in 1972, which was honoring Du Bois and Martin Luther King. Um, and in which he says, basically the task of revolutionaries is not just to like, be like, oh, the people are angry and this is just enough to basically constitute the demands of like a revolution, but also the importance of revolution is to unite the people and also to weaken the ruling elite. And you can't have a revolution if the ruling elite themselves are not actually substantially weakened. Um, 
And I, it's almost like Trump is in some ways a manifestation of that task. But the other thing, and this is, I guess I want to try to attempt to also answer the question that Porber, that Porber raised of the civil rights movement and its relation to the state and civil rights movement as a revolutionary process in which it's almost like you could say that the civil rights movement started from a place in which it went directly to the color line as a manifestation of the, well, one, like a, a regime of rule that had been institutionalized in law, right? Because basically segregation was something that was institutionalized in law, but also a manifestation of a regime of, of the regime of rule, which was the most clearly contradictory and illogical, right? The color line is something which was the most immediate, the, mo the clearest manifestation of the illogic of a particular form of rule, right? But um, what I feel like, this is, a, this is my, my, I guess my attempt to interpret these things, but what I feel like the civil rights movement did is that on the one hand, it brought the bourgeois democratic state to its furthest possible capacity. It, in some ways, it brought the bourgeois democratic state to its furthest possible like threshold of what it was capable of doing in terms of honoring a certain uh, social contract with the people. And you see this through basically like the attempt to get black people the right to vote. And also the, the fact that the movement was also placing demands upon like the federal government, upon the presidential administrations, you know, the war on poverty, all of these things. And so in one sense, like it is a movement to bring the bourgeois, like a, a certain form of bourgeois democratic rule to its furthest extent that is possible while simultaneously through like nonviolence, through the mass movement to introduce amongst the people a new kind of first social relation, but implicit within that, a new kind of social contract amongst the American people. And that, so basically um, you have like parallel things happening at the same time, but both these, both of these relate to the state, but one is essentially, yeah, like when King says honoring, like honoring the commitments of the constitution, it's in some ways like challenging the existing form of the state to uh, honor its, its like sort of contract with the people while also what the civil rights movement did in almost like an embryonic form was to introduce a new kind of social contract broadly amongst the American people from which would emerge the conditions for a new kind of democracy, a new kind of people's democracy. And it's almost like with the overturning of the civil rights movement, the, assassina the assassinations of people like King and the Kennedys and all of that, it's like you reach, it's like basically the people, the movement made their move, the ruling class made its move. You reach almost like for, I guess, basically the past 50 years, a state of almost rapprochement, a state of like almost cold war. And now is the period in which all of those, the tasks that were left unfinished from the civil rights movement, those are now, it's like you're in the stage of picking those back up again. Um, but yeah, I guess I've been trying to figure out like how, yeah, like Porba's question, how did the civil rights movement relate to the state? Because in some ways you could say like the gross misinterpretation of the civil rights movement is that it's like the civil rights movement made America a multiracial democracy. Like that, that was the sole aim of the movement, which is basically to say that black people should be included within the existing framework of like basically bourgeois democratic rule. But it's more, it's almost like to see the, the complexity of it, but also the genius of it, you have to see that there were multiple things happening at the same time. Um, but I, I don't know, that was just my also attempt to answer the question that Porbo was raising. 
Yeah, I'm just just to add to it, not add to it as answering, but maybe to deepening the question I was asking is also this conversation made me really appreciate how the state really it inherits its character from the struggle of the people that constitute uh, the state. So then I guess the American state is in that way qualitatively different from the one in India and the one in China. And so I guess the state at the moment of its conception also inherits historical and societal contradictions that are mired in uh, in the society that 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 is in question. And then by that logic, I guess the state can't be something that's static, but also something that evolves in time and through struggle into achieving, um, I, I don't know what its final form uh, would be. And I sort of, I was also sort of seeing the civil rights movement as a, you know, as, as, as a struggle of the people trying to push the state towards where it needed to go in, in terms of sort of nullifying these contradictions that exists existed within the formulation of you know racism but also i guess yeah white supremacy that that way but again this is not complete that's how i was trying to understand it yeah i also oh wait you should go to her sorry oh well i also wanted to add that i think part of the du bois london synthesis question it made me think about how I feel like having after having read Lenin's State and Revolution, I think in some ways, I don't know if it's a, a limitation of Lenin, but something that I feel like gets kind of dogmatically uh, dogmatically taken from Lenin is that his his primary conceptualization of the state and state and revolution is that the state is that special force in society which reserves the right to force. In which stands above society, but like he primarily like defines the state as like that special force in society, which like reserves the right almost to violence. And I feel like that's like one side of the state, especially a state in a period of crisis. But I feel like the other side of it, which is what Doc is saying, and also what I feel like Du Bois also brings, is that the state, in a democratic sense, can also be that set of relations which fulfills, in some ways, like yeah, like the will of the people or which acts as like a mechanism or an instrument for, for the people to rule. Um, and I feel like, yeah, like there's a almost like the part that people get from Lenin is almost just like the state is simply that force, which like exact exerts the right to violence within society. But I feel like it can't just, it's like, that's one side of it, but that's not maybe the complete aspect of it. Adding, uh, adding to uh, what you uh, drew from Lenin's uh, State and Revolution, the, the, which informed my previous question was uh, the state as the intermediary between uh, the, the classes in society, I guess the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, and I guess the worker, the people, which uh, at some at certain times uh, helps mediate the conflict between the two and uh, by you know giving things to the workers that is not such that is acceptable to the ruling elite at, at other times completely crushing the uh, uh, the uh, uh, worker when their demands uh, are not acceptable 
and uh, the uh, what do you call it? The the for the the formula the formulation at at the time uh, that Lenin made I think was uh, when the czar was unable to hold on to power uh, and uh, was. Uh, basically going to have to abdicate the throne and, and the, the Bolsheviks were uh, looking to seize power. And uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, I guess in, in our time, things are a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, so I, I, I appreciate how, how you mentioned in Jeremiah that we can just like uh, follow certain, I guess, dogmatic interpretations uh, of the text. Uh, and take it out of context, even if you are following it a little bit more truthfully. Hey, Kathy, were you going to say something? Mm, I've just been thinking a lot about this whole discussion, and I feel like there's a reason why... Um, yeah, I'm just still I'm still appreciating our entire discussion up until this point because I know we had started from a very very early you know just trying to describe the genealogy of the state, but there's also a reason why Doc you had paired it with a discussion on why Du Bois is the fundamental thinker of today, and I know that um, part of the discussion is also to clarify why Du Bois has been so uh, weaponized actually by the intellectual or activists, the left and, and, and whatnot, and in the interests, unbeknownst or perhaps without to them of the ruling elite. But there's a reason why, that, because I do feel as if we have been returning to, and then I feel like that's why I've been sort of listening because as soon as I've been trying to think through, like how do you even formulate a question of like, so what would Du Bois sort of teach? And like, I feel like the, dis the discussion goes like three more dimensions deeper about this, um, you know, synthesis of Lenin Du Bois, or even the um, discussions that Du Bois had around um, civilization and, um, the, and the civilizational state, but before even that even emerged in his travels to the Soviet Union and China, how he describes how um, communism of like a Asiatic character and all of that precedes what we see today. And then yeah, just the contributions he made through understanding, yeah, the processes that were at play through Black Reconstruction um, and how that was so much of the event that we had done in, in February that I feel like we're almost revisiting, but because things have evolved. And I'm just sort of still um, thinking about how Du Bois is a theorist of crisis. Obviously, I joked to Alice that that is why he named his magazine The Crisis and <laughs> whatnot. So I think I'm still just on that and also appreciative of how we um, have been also, of course, seeing um, the contributions that were made by King and by Baldwin to this as well. It just is a really, I think obviously these are questions that do not get resolved in one sitting, which is why we come back to it time and time again. And I'm just, um, yeah, just really, um, yeah, just most of the time haven't thought about how to even, yeah, <laughs> put this all together. But yeah, ground ourselves in Du Bois, which gives us this huge advantage over 
um, like the the real Du Bois <laughs> actually studying. And well, actually, one of the things I just also wanted to say is that I think in the past, because of my own um, inflections toward, you know, I'm somebody who was always drawn towards studying culture. I wanted, I think, to engage in like the sort of level of political science, philosophy, but I would always feel a little bit disarmed by it. But I feel like what has been amplified, unfortunately, by like postmodernism, but also by like cultural nationalism is actually that like people will say like, well, I don't really want to engage with those questions because the state doesn't represent me. And then they'll never thought think of and I feel like I've no you're probably telling that story, Doc, of that of maybe your 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 friend or colleague or or acquaintance who might have already like exited the conversation without even engaging in this because they're not seeing themselves as part of a future of working out these questions. And that is, I think, a shame of like cultural nationalism, this desire to separate, to exit, to um, be like, well, like, I don't want to think about the Constitution. We either need a new one or it never represented me. And um, of course, slavery is very much in the, you know, part of that discussion. But that's why we're grounding it in the first and the second and the third revolution. And that's why I think we're taking all of these so serious, these questions so seriously and not just talking about, you know, the rights that were protected by the state laid out in the first row. We are like, I feel like very much aware that that is something. And I feel like that's what gives this whole conversation an edge because we also do see how the black proletariat or the people have been at the forefront of driving these um, processes. And um, which is why our discussion of the fourth American Revolution is really exciting and surprising that so few people who consider themselves in that camp of this doesn't apply to me aren't animated by the contributions that this is really trying to make. So, yeah, <laughs> that's just been on my mind. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, well, cause even to Samir's earlier point about postmodernism, yeah, the whole formulation that you're taught in undergrad is power is everywhere. The state doesn't really matter because power is in all of us. And yeah, that's like the Foucault thing. Um, but it's it's really interesting how all of that stuff comes back, like, as, yeah, like, I, I don't know, just like Kathy's saying, like, it forces you to not think about actually the important questions. Um, and I guess with that, if people, does anyone have any further things to add? I just want to make a short comment, which is that I think this is very valuable because no like people don't understand what actually is the nature of the crisis, really. Because um, we also hear like, oh, the current crisis is a crisis of capitalism. Um, but actually what Doc laid out today is something that's actually much deeper than like the capitalism that people, like is common leftist uh, discourse. Uh, and that includes the state because I think depending on how you see the crisis or what the crisis is, the resolution also is different. Um, so I think I, I still have a lot to process, uh, but I think um, it help, it's helped me a lot in terms of understanding what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the questions that we talked about today and that Doc raised, I think are questions that we'll be discussing and investigating for a long time. And I like that the way that Doc said in terms of these are also questions, although 
it may manifest in different kinds of language, but these are also questions that the people are actively involved in and are already discussing, especially through the course of like the next couple months with the, with the election. Um, and I just wanted to also, before we end, to remind people if you weren't able to be here for the beginning of today's discussion, um, we announced today that we'll be meeting in person again starting next week in Philly um, at the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia. Um, and you can go back to the beginning of the live stream to get more details about that. But, um, but yeah, we'll still be doing a live stream as usual, but it'll just be those of us who are in Philly um, will be meeting in person. And so we look forward to catching everyone in that format next week. Um, and with that, yeah, just want to thank, as usual, everyone who participated both today in the live. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You don't mind if I just say one small thing. Sure, sure. But, you know, um, I just want to impress upon us that as we go into this election year, and we're in the election year already, by the way, that we have to understand the nature of the crisis is why I agree completely with ours. That it is uh, a, an unprecedented event in American history. We are in a place that this nation has never been in. Uh, and never have so many people been a part of deciding the future of this country. And, uh, and we're not speaking about the people in any naive and romantic sense. We're talking about living human beings who experience the world and experience their government and the state and this economy and who are thinking in ways that most people never thought they would be compelled to think. It was at one time Democrat versus Republican. Now it is a question of a movement challenging the state up against the state. And these are existential decisions on the part of the people. Uh, and in this sense, uh, any set of theories or practices that uh, trivialize the people. This is why the 1619 Project, the Counter-Revolution of 1776 Project, CAST, that project, all of this is a trivialization of the American people and how they will respond to a historic crisis in their own country. This is what is so profound and, and of course, when we, you know, a lot of people don't understand why we talk about the black prophetic tradition. We talk about the black prophetic tradition because this is one form of class consciousness, especially among black people. People express their consciousness of the world through various modalities of thought and music and art. And so we talk about the black prophetic tradition as a form of resistance and a form of class resistance in the fight for class unity. The last thing that I would say, you know, the free school is Du Bois, King, Baldwin, Ropeson, but they are all theorists and thinkers 
of crisis, it is very difficult to think in the framework a proletarian imaginary, uh, a black proletarian imaginary that does not begin with crisis. And so when we read Baldwin, with you have to know, you have to be able to read uh, that he is talking about crisis. Du Bois from the very beginning, it's been nothing but crisis, the study of crisis, the crisis of democracy, the crisis of empire, the crisis of neocolonialism. It's all over the place. But we have to understand what they're saying. Uh, and King, you know, this idea of a creative resolution to this crisis. You know, I guess you could say he was 50 years ahead of his time. And he is, I think, any way you cut it, if there's to be a new nation, he will have to be its father. Um, so I, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. No, I like it. I think um, it's even, I think the free school has <laughs> made it possible in some ways, even for me, or at least for me to think about, it's like crisis as like a category through which to think and it was really also, it reminded me of a few weeks ago when you talked about Cornell West and how his central category is the catastrophe. But I feel like catastrophe implies certain things and it points towards certain things, which is basically that people can't really do that much about it, except maybe to like resist in like individual or small ways. But that the category of crisis, what it points towards is a resolution. And what that means is that it points towards the people to resolve the crisis. And so the crisis is both like everything that is like act like oppressing the people, but also the crisis implies or points towards the capacity of the people. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested, I think, to see how we continue to like deploy the crisis as like a category moving forward. Um, but but yeah, okay, with that, uh, we can end. We're a little bit past two. Um, but yeah, thank you again to everyone who participated in the comments um, and also on the live stream. And yeah, we'll see you next week. All right, with that, goodbye. Thanks.